Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko in another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 31st, 2015. This is episode 1615 of the Survival Podcast. And you know what day it is. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It's time for your uh, questions for the expert council. This has become our new Friday show. I think everybody's really, really pleased with it. I do have some stuff myself for you guys today as well. I think we have nine members of the council chiming in this week. Three have piked out on us. They've become pikers. Ah, a little update there. So uh, one person actually was first and already had a membership and said... Don't worry about it. So I found the second person that was right on the Piker thing, and they didn't have one, so I, they got their free membership. They don't want their name released. Anyway, Piker, I said the question was, where does the word Piker come from in a in a movie? And the key was, that is a cult classic for salespeople. Uh, a lot of people said Snatched. I'm sure it's in that movie, though I've never seen it. It's, Snatch is not a cult classic for salespeople to watch. The movie is Boiler Room, and the actor that says it, his character, I can't remember the character's name, but the actor's name is Ben Affleck. So that's an older movie about a securities uh, scam, basically, where people are selling off-board stocks uh, to Marks on the phone, and uh, it's part of his recruiting speech for the new young guys that are going to try to become brokers in this firm, who at this point have no idea that it is, in fact, a securities scam. Uh, firm that's been set up. Anyway, before I uh, get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. I help them to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSB or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer 
for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of publication at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber. They have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1615. What's going on? We have... Galileo versus the Inquisition, round one, and we have the Virginia Company and the Summer Isles. Uh, if you want to read the Virginia Company and the Summer Isles, you can do that TSP wiki. I'm going to read Galileo and the Inquisition, round one. Galileo has been making observations of the heavens and coming up with a lot of questions. Copernicus has argued for a heliocentric universe where the earth, the planets, and the stars rotate around the sun. Galileo agrees, but the church does not. Tycho Blaith argues for a model where the sun and the moon orbit the earth, but everything else orbits the sun. Uh, Tycho's model works reasonably well, given their imprecise measurements and their assumptions. They assume that the stars are close enough so the earth changes its position in orbit. The stars should appear to shift position. No shift, then no moving earth. They see no shift. The shift is called parallax. You can see parallax yourself by looking at a tall building two miles away. Now walk a block to your left or right and notice how the building seems to shift position relative to the buildings behind it. With precise measurements, you can estimate how far away the building is. If the scientists can't see parallax for the stars, this means the stars are an ungodly distance away, and no one wants to think about that at the time. The church allows Galileo to discuss the Copernicus model as long as he doesn't state it is a fact. Currently, he can't even convince his fellow scientists this will take some time. My take by Alex Shrugged, I often jump between a modern mindset and a medieval one in order to accommodate my religious obligations. I know people who say that the universe rotates around the earth. For a while, they were teaching this medieval idea to kids in a religious school. They stopped when parents insisted the school teach proper science. The clergy didn't put up much of a fight. I don't think they believed it either. You can often tell what people really believe by watching what they do and not always by what they say. For religious purposes, I count the years since creation as 5775. Do I believe it? Hmm. I can see a path there. But it requires too much hand-waving and leaps of faith. So no, not really. Scientists measure the age of the universe from 10 to 13 billion years old. Their models are not perfect, but they make sense to me. Even though they change the age of the universe from time to time, the bottom line is definitely not 5,775 years, not even close. For an intelligent discussion about reconciling religious claims with scientific theory, I suggest The Science of God by Gerald Schroeder. He gives a science affair hearing while treating religious claims as serious questions, including how old the universe is. Here's my modern take by Jack Spirico. Religion and science need to get away from each other. And religion doesn't need to be saying what is scientific. And 
Science may be able to help prove some components of religion at some point, but probably not interested in doing so right now. Um, recently, the Pope has come out to talk about how horrible climate change is and weigh in on the scientific side of climate change. Um, this is another example of religion and science where they really don't belong with each other. Um, here's, here's my view on this. This is about what is religion versus what is science. And to me, the defining characteristic, and you believe what you want to believe in whatever faith you profess to believe, but the defining characteristic is when something is a religion, what you say or what you believe becomes as important as what you do, or more so. Okay. Whereas when you're being pragmatic and practical, what you do is far more important than what you say. And you see that here. Galileo, you can, you can talk about this as long as you don't say it's true. What? And if you do, by the way, we'll lock you up or beat you or exile you or kill you or something because you're interfering with our religion. Okay? This is the tone of the, the climate change debate today. So if a person, like me for instance, lives an extremely sustainable lifestyle, probably does more of the things that people that believe in Ameri you know, anthropomorphic global warming say should be done than the average person that believes in it, right? I mean, if you look at all the things that I do, environmentally sound things that I do, things that I do in a sustainable manner, I'm doing all the things they say we should do, but I'm saying I'm doing it in spite of the fact that I don't think that is the issue. I think there's all these other environmental issues where you're still an evil bastard, right? Because you don't say the right words and you don't believe the right thing. When I say that the climate change movement of today, specifically CO2-based global warming, is a religion, it's not that I don't think there's any valid case that can be made from the scientific side on, on the opposition, on the people that say it's true. My point is that the people that buy into it, that's not, their, that's not how it's working for them. For them, it's about what you say and what you believe. And I've even had people say directly, it doesn't matter what you do. As long as you say that, you're wrong. And, and, and not just that you're wrong like we have a differing opinion, but like you're somehow causing the problem. And, and that's, that's what I... So those of you that get offended because you believe the other side, go ahead, believe whatever you want. I, I challenge you to look deeper into it, but believe what you want. But when you are more concerned with a person's personal belief than you are with a person's actions, what they profess from their mouth and what they think in their heart than the actions they take toward their fellow man, you've moved into religion. That is the very nature of religion. That the faith is equal to the action. Again, you can believe what you want about that as it pertains to your faith, but think a lot about it when you're judging what other people believe and ignoring the actions they take. In fact, the way I put it with the whole climate change thing is this way. If tomorrow I found out that the, the, the people that argue for anthropomorphic global warming were right, somehow it was proven to me, and I had to say I was wrong, I wouldn't change a single thing about the way I live my life and the work that I do and the efforts that I make. The only thing I would change is what I say and what I believe. Okay, But my actions would remain consistent with prior to that change occurring. I think most people that are true believers in the AGW faith 
could not say the same thing. That if they were one day convinced that it is untrue, that they would continue to do the things they do that they think are fighting climate change just because there's still the right things to do because there are so many environmental problems that we have. That's what I mean when I say that. So I just want to clear that up. Uh, next up, let me uh, ask you real quick to consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you've never done that before. The Member Support Brigade is how you can help support the show. All I'm going to say today is if you want to know more, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. Let's get into the main subject of today's show. I want to start out with a um, kind of a follow-up from earlier this week. Earlier this week, I did a, a, a show on food storage, and in one part of the show I mentioned an electric canner that we use, an electric pressure canner that we use. This canner is the, uh, the power pressure cooker, extra large, as seen on TV. Okay, This thing was in an infomercial. It sold over a million units in an infomercial. Um, there are people all over the Internet on blogs uh, with uh, fancy-sounding names like they're official and actually mean something, like the National Home Preparedness Food Whatever Storage, or you name it, uh, cautioning people about this, uh, saying that you, you can't use these things for pressure canning. Let me read to you a comment by a concerned listener to this show who found one such thing and tell you what my response was, and then give you a little bit more on this, okay? So Pam says, good review show. I was intrigued by the electric canner you mentioned, as I find my big pressure cooker bulky and a scary and slightly scary. I was reading the reviews on Amazon, and in one-star comments, one-star only because the manufacturer claims to be able to can food is false. It is not to can food in this appliance despite what they say. The National Center for Home Food Preservation has recently posted its position on this issue. You can read about it in this link. If you have already canned food, throw it out. You will be playing Russian roulette with your life and those of your loved ones if you eat this food and there's a link. And then Pam goes on to say, I trust your judgment. Have you had any concerns about canning meats and soup? I really want to ramp up my meat preservation with canning. I already love biltong. Do you have any good baked bean recipes for this pressure cooker? I don't have any good baked bean recipes. I don't eat a lot of beans. But let me read you the article here, at least parts of it. You may have seen advertising. This is, this is on preserving food at home. Brought to you by the National Center for Home Food Preservation, hosted by the University of Georgia. Trademark. Um, I found a lot of sites for these people. I don't know if these guys are a shell for some other, like, big company or USDA or whatever. I don't know. They don't look that official to me. I'll just say that. But I'm not... I'm not going to use that to make my case here. I'm just going to say that just because something sounds important doesn't mean that it is. So don't, instead of me saying because I question who they really are, I question their argument, what I'm saying is just because they sound authoritative doesn't mean that you have to take their argument without any kind of reprisal of your own or further investigation, if that makes sense. You've seen advertisements for electric multi-cooker appliances now containing canning and steam canning buttons on their front panels. Before you make that purchase, we want you to be aware that we do not recommend our canning processes for use in multi-cookers at this time. Okay, let's, let's, let's stop right there for a second. Huh. <laughs> we do not recommend our canning processes for use in electric multi-cookers at this time. Okay, so... Fine, I agree. I think you should follow the manufacturer's instructions that come with the product you buy. 
So, so right there we agree, even though the, the way that's presented leads you to believe something else. We do not know if proper thermal process development work has been done in order to support the clanning advice that is distributed with these multi-cooker appliances. The way the USDA National Center for Home Food Preservation and University of Georgia process development work has been done would not yield results expected to be transferable to these electric cookers. In other words, we haven't used them, we haven't tested them, we don't know jack shit about them, but we're saying we don't think our process would work there. Well, since you don't use electric canners, I guess it wouldn't. Let's go on. Our process directions for low-acid foods, for example, were developed for stovetop pressure canners, which hold four or more quart-sized jars standing upright. Even if the, there are referrals to the National Center for HFP in the instructions for canning in the manufacturer's directions, which, by the way, in the one I recommended, there are not, we do not currently support the use of USDA canning processes in electric multi-cooker appliances. No one asked you to. Let me keep reading. If you are canning low-acid foods and the proper amount of heat is not delivered to all parts of the food in the jars during the process, then the risk of botulism food poisoning is under unprocessed foods. Correct. But you haven't done any testing to disprove the manufacturer's claims whatsoever. I'll keep going. Some of the major reasons we cannot recommend using electric multi-cookers for canning One, no USDA thermal process work has been done with the jars inside the electric pressure cooker of any kind. Okay, you can read the rest of that if you want to, but then do it. Test it or shut up. Okay, hold on. What matters is temperature, not pressure. Even if the manufacturer says its cooker reaches the pressure required for canning, that does not prove the food in the jars is heated throughout the same rate as the canner used for the process development. Hold on. When steam is pressurized... To a specific pressure, that is what allows the steam to reach a temperature higher than if it was just regular steam. And it is, in fact, the pressure of the steam that tells you that you've reached a high enough temperature, and it is, in fact, how pressure canners that you put on top of your stove work. Now, does that mean that every part of the jar got to that temperature? No, that's why there's specific lengths of time for different foods that you do based on the fact that the temperature has been reached inside the vessel that the time based on the food and its density and size of the jars tells you that the jar can be reasonably considered safe because that temperature should have been reached in the jars. Okay, A big bunch of stuff, but in the end, that's how all canners work. In order to, this is three, in order to ensure safety of the final product, the temperature in the canner must stay at a minimum throughout the process time. So how do power surges or drops in an electric canner cause the temperature to drop too low? How will you know if that happens? What? What? I'll let that go. Four, USDA process, USDA process times rely on a combination of heat from the time the canner is coming to pressure during the actual process time and then during the early stages of cooling in the canning jars. Even after the heat is turned off under the canner at the end of the recommended process, the fruit remains at high enough temperatures for the period of time that can still contribute to killing of bacteria. This retained heat while the canner has to cool naturally to zero pounds pressure before opening is used to advantage in calculating total sterilizing values. What they're actually saying is we, you can't use our times. Okay? Then it says, please note, this statement about electric cookers does not include the ball automatic home canner for acid foods only, which is electric, but is not a multi-cooker, but a dedicated canner. Two comes in its own instructions of preset canning and has a thermal process. Okay, so in other words... What you haven't heard in here, other than at the end, 
where they specifically mention one and say, well, that's fine for, for, for acid canning, for, for steam canning, is the mention of any individual device. So they've taken everybody's piece of equipment and lumped it into one great big pile and said, don't use it for this because it doesn't work with the way we say things work. So in other words, it doesn't have the government's blessing from this angle from this particular group. Let me tell you what it does have. It has the government's blessing or it wouldn't be on the shelves with the claims that it has. Okay, now here's the other thing. Do you know how many, right now, as of today, of these multi-cookers with canning buttons claim from the manufacturer to be able to do pressure canning of low-acid foods like meats, soups, etc.? Dun-dun-dun. One. Exactly one. The one that I've recommended. That's how many. The Power Pressure Cooker XL. Okay, now, that is the only one. That is the only one that the manufacturer claims it can be done for this, and that is the only one that I have ever found that can do this, which is why I selected it and purchased it. I actually found one from Ball that does canning, and I thought it was a great idea until I found out that Ball does not make the claim that it can be used for this, and I wanted more than just to be able to do acid canning with it. I specifically wanted it. Here's a large batch of chili. We eat some chili. We, we set up four or eight cans, and we do it, and then we put that away. So we could do small batches every time we cook a large amount of food and take the reserves instead of freezing them and can them and slowly build up our stores. That's why I bought this product. Now, let me tell you why I believe the manufacturer's claims. Number one, when I went on forums about this, there were all kinds of chicken little screaming, how, oh, no, you can't do it. The USDA cranning people say, oh, you'll die. You're kid-. The same crap that you got from this person, okay? And then I saw, you know, one person would make that claim, and a person would go, well, I've been using it for two years. I've been using it for four years. I've been using it for three years. I've been using it for two years. I've been using it for a year. I do it all the time. So none of these, no, not one person said, okay, here's a case of somebody following the instructions, using this device, and ending up sick or dead because of this device. Not one. Not a single one. Zero. Zero. Millions of these are in people's hands all over the country. They come with a book that specifically tells you how to can low-acid products and gives you cooking times, etc., for how long to do them. Okay? It is the recommendations that come with their canner, not from these people. The next thing, if you could prove that this device did not do what the manufacturer said, and you were a lawyer, you could make millions of dollars by issuing a class action lawsuit for every single person that ever bought one, and nobody's done that. If this thing could be disproven, somebody would have made some money on it by now. If I was a lawyer in California and thought there was any validity to this, I'd have testing being done at my own expense, because if that testing can conclusively prove that this device puts people at risk, then you've got a problem for the manufacturer. So I am sure enough in the safety of this product that I use it for myself. I'm not paid by these people. These people don't know me from Adam, and I don't know them from Adam other than I bought their product off of Amazon. The link that I put in the show notes doesn't even use my Amazon affiliate link. I, 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 I tend to not even do that with product that I recommend on the show. I don't tend to try to make a living off Amazon affiliates. It makes everything clean that I do. I'm saying it because I believe in it, not because I want to profit from it. Okay, So I don't profit from this, so there's no motivation for me to tell you this other than I believe it and that I use it in my own home. 
and we've been very pleased with the results, and neither one of us have ended up dead from botulism yet. Does that mean there's absolutely no risk whatsoever that anything could ever go wrong with this? And the answer is no. Life comes with risk. I would say that I don't believe the risk in using this product for your canning is any greater than the risk of using a stovetop canner for your canning. That things can and do go wrong with canning. And that's why it makes sense for most of your lower acid foods that when you take them out of the can, you don't eat them cold. You actually heat them up to boiling for a small period of time as an extra safety measure, which isn't 100% on getting rid of botulism toxins, but is quite significant at reducing the risk. So that's another way you can mitigate risk. But I don't believe this product is any less safe than your all-American pressure canner. If you wanted to further mitigate risk, add five minutes to the processing time. Seriously. Anything you process in a canner like this is going to be cooked to heck anyway. It's not going to like so overcook it that it's going to be much different. So if you're concerned, at, you know, instead of giving, if it's a 30-minute processing time, give it 35. And as far as it retaining the heat and continuing, <laughs> trust me, that happens. You try it, you'll see what I mean. Next up, real quick, wanted to tell you about something that Stephen Harris has available. It's called the Scout Stove. And I am kind of blown away with this product uh, for what it does. And you can get it with this cool little pot, okay? Um, it's the MSR Alpine Pot. It's a standard pot. A lot of people use it for backpacking. And the stove itself will then fit it in the pot. So you basically have the pot and all the stove and all the peripherals are in it. This is a little bitty gasifier stove. It puts together in a couple seconds. And with twigs and a couple pieces of paper and an igniter, uh, you can have this thing unpacked, lit, and be cooking on it in about a minute with twigs and pine cones and stuff like that. Uh, I have one. I've played with it a little bit. I haven't done a video of it yet. Steve does have some videos. The website for it is scoutstove.com. The reason I bring this up is he's running a discount on all his uh, gas stoves and, and rocket stoves right now, 10%. And I think that thing will be dead by the end of today. So I just wanted to mention that real quick. Scoutstove.com. Stephen Harris approved product. Again, I do have one. I just haven't been able to uh, do a video for it on you for you guys yet. And honestly, it's 104 degrees out right now. I don't want to do videos on anything that involves flames. Uh, if I want to cook something right now, I could probably cook it in a in a in a jar with a lid on it. Uh, it's that hot here, so that'll probably come later. But Steve has some great videos for you again. The website scoutstove.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your first question for expert panel members. And today's question is for, first question is for Michael Jordan, uh, the bee whisperer. This is from Matt. He said he would like to get his opinion on feeding of bees for a new top bar hive, as well as uh, if six to seven inches is enough of an entrance space, or would you perhaps add an extra hole to cut down on bee traffic jams? The details is he's a first-year beekeeper living in northern Ohio. He's got bees late at the very end of May. He had a setback early on when a bad storm rolled in and blew the hive over, which killed some bees and wrecked two of the early combs. Currently, he has a mild summer, and the growth and blooms are not what they normally are. In his inspection today, he has six fully made foundations. One has been cross-combed and broke, as well as the beginnings of a couple other foundations. The bees have used two-and-a-half mason jars of 107 water sugar, so that's uh, one part to 0.7 parts water to sugar. Uh, once they finish the rest of the jar, should I pull it out completely? I'm just concerned that they are behind with a late start in midsummer and broken combs. Michael, how do we get these bees off to a better start before winter comes? 
Thank you uh, once more, Jack, for letting me on your survival podcast. I really enjoy all the message and emails that I receive from all of you, and I'm glad that I'm helping you guys. And yes, we are updating our website. I think I finally got my daughter not to like boys so much and wants to probably go to work and earn some money. So we're going to get that all going uh, at the family business. But let's uh, get to helping Matt in Ohio. Matt, there are some great beaks in Ohio that I'd like you to know about. Shane McClellan, master beekeeper and with a degree from Ohio State in bees and beekeeping is right by you. Uh, so if you are on my Facebook page, look him up. He's in your neck of the woods and can be very helpful for your local area beekeeping. Uh, Matt's question on top bar, high feeding, entrance space, and new packages and swarm installs, I guess, is what we're looking at. Matt, I'm going to hit up the, the colony of bees. Um, happy girls are, wed, are well-fed girls, man. Swarm season is April 15th through July 15th, zones 3, 4, 5, and even 6A. As soon as the temps are around 50, and as the temps go up, so does the swarm season. In, in any package, install, or swarm, it takes around one month for the bees to fill up to six to eight full frames of good comb. So in two months, they'll have a third of a top bar full. In three months, they should have 13 to 15 full bars or frames filled of comb. So getting swarms after July 15th, you'll have a hard time on getting the bees to make it for food storage and brood uh, bearing. Um, so feed your bees for a full season. Swarms are next year's delight, and packaged bees have to be fed. And uh, feeding your packaged bees, um, you won't have to worry about anything as long as you keep feeding them. So feed them a 50-50 sugar mix, which would be sugar and water, and we say 50-50 by volume. So if it's a cup of sugar, it's a cup of water, and that's what you're mixing together. And that will really help build that uh, colony fast because they're going to build comb, which allows the queen to lay, making more brood. Um, so if your bees are slow to build, feed, feed, feed. You know, I, I feel that you build a hive and the colony the first year. The second year you do management of the hive, pinching queens out and uh, starting your first honey flow. And then your third year you'll be splitting hives, doing bigger checks, and, and, and going from a beginning beekeeper to a working beekeeper. A good hive will eat 3 pounds of feed a day and up to 25 pounds of feed a week. So if you don't have any nectar flow, that's what you're going to be feeding them. Uh, good tips, man. Find a local beak that's doing the same kind of high system you are. Look at their bees. Check for pests, sickness, anything that you you think. But if they look good, befriend that guy. Learn from him. You're only a one-year beekeeper, and if he's been here longer, you know he might be able to help you. And if he's also beginning out, you guys can help each other. And the reason I'm saying this is a good, a really good tip of finding a beak that's local is that uh, you guys should be building a good beeking, building a good beekeeping community anyway, and that's why we're here. And you guys should exchange brood. That uh, you know, uh, giving uh, brood to you helps you increase your colony by hatching. And if his hives are doing really good, it helps them from not swarming. So you're helping each other. You're building yours and helping his to not swarm. So brood swapping is really cool. And if you do brood swapping and get into it on a uh, community basis, you're going to get different kinds of drones. You guys are going to help each other requeen. And, uh, you know, it's we're here to build a community, and that's why we're here in the first place. So get right out there and try to find somebody with brood that's going to help you build that up. 
and get them going. Uh, once, you know, the winter's going to be coming here, find a sleeping bag for your bees to wrap around your top bar. Right? You want to keep those bees warm, and I think a sleeping bag works the best. You can just put it all the way around a top bar. You know, uh, Langstroth hives, you know, they're a little bit different, but top bar, you just slip a sleeping bag over it, man, and it'll keep those girls warm. You know, so that way when you, you want to keep a hive in the winter around 40 degrees to 45. Anything over that, the bees will overeat and exhaust the inner feeding that's inside the hive. And at 40, they don't, uh, they're, they're not so dormant and they can keep warmer without freezing out, allowing them to feed. Now let's get to the entrance space on your hive. Uh, top bar or any other hive, in my opinion, uh, five inches, man. Uh, Look at look at the bees in nature's man. That they're not going into a long area to come in. It makes the bees have more guard bees. You know, you're more acceptable for a lot more things. So, in my opinion, you should never be larger than five inches. Uh, it wants to help them keep the hive under control from invaders. If you have a full hive full of brood and lots of bees coming on the porch, split it. But other than that, keep the pests out of your hive. Build a better landing pad for them to land on so they can line up. Uh, you know, I even close off the bottom of my hives and drill a three-quarter inch hole six inches from the bottom. You know, uh, putting in a piece of three-quarter inch pipe with a 45-degree angle pointing down. Uh, makes the bees control, keeps the mice out. The hive beetles can't land in it. Helps mite control. I mean, the small entranceway and those doing those things are way better. Than, than trying to remove and flip this little bar system and whatever. Just, you know, eliminate the hole. Make them work. Make them check the bees. Remember, uh, in the nature, queens are all we worry about because they breed. They, they make the brood. Food storage over winter is very important and to have a large population in October. Don't give up. Feed those girls. Uh, make it happen. This is Michael Jordan. I am the Bee Whisperer for the Bee Friendly Company telling you to buy your honey local, support local cottage industries, and help your fellow man because one day he too may be extinct. All right, next up today I have a question for Nick Ferguson. Actually, no, I'm sorry, Darby Simpson's next up. Uh, it says, Darby, my wife and I have recently started up a farm. We are currently focusing on chicken eggs and pastured broilers and turkeys. My current question revolves around pricing. I was wondering if you go into how do you figure pricing? Do you do it based on per pound or per animal? If there are any unexpected or overlooked expenses you need to account for when setting up a pricing structure. Also, how important is it to be in the ballpark of competitors? We see prices around us and wonder how they can afford to raise animals at whatever price they're offering. One example is people selling backyard eggs for $1.50 a dozen, when I know the feed alone has cost them more than that. Thank you for your time. I look forward to your response. So, Darby, what say you on this? And those of you that aren't big into the ag stuff, listen to this stuff, guys, because this is about business. This just happens to be that the product in question is agricultural. Darby, what say you? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Adam's question about setting prices for his new pastured poultry operation. Uh, Adam, I just want to uh, say thanks for sending in your, your question this week. Uh, when Jack forwarded it to me, I got pretty excited. Uh, I absolutely love talking about marketing 
and cash flow and business planning and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I was really stoked to get it. And also, uh, I'm really happy that you and your wife are thinking about this kind of thing on the front end and instead of thinking it, uh, about it on the back end and, and being reactionary uh, because that's where you can really get into trouble. Um, something I've seen uh, on a very frequent basis is you, you have uh, you know somebody that, that starts up a farming operation and they produce a product and they don't keep good data. They don't track expenses along the way. And they get the, the product ready to go. And now it's time to sell it. And they just kind of like look around and see what everybody else is selling stuff for. Or maybe they might even go to the supermarket of all places and look at what it's selling for there. And that's how they go about pricing their stuff. And uh, like I talked about last week, you know, uh, it, it's really easy to go out of business uh, in a farming enterprise if you don't do a nice cost analysis on the front end. Um, so what happens with these new guys, uh, you know, is is, is uh, they're not making very much money uh, or they're actually losing money. And before long, farming's not very much fun. And the next thing you know uh, is that you're out of farming. So anyhow, a great question, and I want to dive into uh, answering it for you. And I actually want to start out by answering it by giving you a couple of quotes to think about. Uh, the first quote, and this is like my absolute favorite quote ever uh, when it comes to farming, it comes from the book You Can Farm by Joel Salatin. And we find it on page uh, 413, and this is actually a, a quote from Joel's father. And what he says here is, you might as well do nothing for nothing as opposed to something for nothing. And basically what he's saying is if, if we're talking about our livelihood, we, we've, we've got to charge appropriately, appropriately for our time. And uh, he, Joel's father goes on to say later on that, you know, you'd be better off uh, you know, to go sit beneath a tree and read a book because that would be more productive than starting a business that you, you know, you're not making any money at. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Joel's father was a licensed CPA and a really sharp guy. And there's a lot of wisdom, uh, that comes from, uh, Joel's father in his books. So anyway, uh, the second quote I've got for you is very simple. Excel never lies. Okay. So, uh, how I go about pricing my stuff is, uh, in short, I'm trying to, uh, pay myself, uh, you know, a, a wage per hour, uh, based on the production side, not the marketing side. We'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. And, uh, what I do, uh, is for everything, you know, we raise like, you know, uh, pigs, chickens, turkeys. I've got a cost analysis I put together, and uh, I'm trying to get a, a price just on the production side. And so today, uh, you know, due to uh, our time constraints, we're just going to look at a, a broiler chicken. And um, what we want to do is we want to look at everything that affects the cost of that broiler chicken on the production side and get a, a cost per bird. And then we can uh, determine a, a price per pound and, like, how much time we've got in it. And um, uh, we can then come up with a good price where we're actually making money and, and farming's fun. Uh, so what I've got in my Excel spreadsheet, um, every line item here is as follows. I've got a price for broiler chicks. I've got a price for shipping those broiler chicks. Uh, I've got a price for some electricity for the brooder uh, because we're running, you know, heat lamps and uh, fans this time of year to help keep them ventilated. And it's not a lot. It's 25, 30 bucks, but it's something I throw in there. I've got a line item for my uh, my starter feed that's run for three weeks, which is a higher protein and a different cost per pound. I've got a price for my grower feed uh, that they're on for the, the rest of their lives, which is a lower price per pound than about how much bird each bird's going to eat, how many pounds. Uh, uh, I've got uh, fuel to the butcher for two trips. There's one trip to drop them off, one trip to pick them up. I've got uh, 
processing cost per bird. I've got a bagging fee per bird. Uh, I've got a, a price for bedding. I actually purchase, uh, you know, pine bedding uh, these days to put the birds on. Uh, when I first started out, I was going and getting, uh, you know, a free sawdust and doing anything I could to save a buck. <laughs> At this point, I just don't have time to do that anymore. So we do buy bedding. Um, something else I used to have a line item for was grit, uh, which we used to purchase at the farm store. But what we use now is creek sand. We find that it works better. Uh, it's free, and it's available right here on the farm. So those are all my costs. And then with that, on a batch of chickens, I have a total cost. And then divided by the number of birds, I get a cost per bird. And then I can look at, okay, well, how much time did I spend? So now I know about, you know, uh, how much time I spent per bird and how many ma uh, pounds of meat I'm going to have to sell and what I can sell that for. And all this generates a, a profit, okay? And I take that profit, I divide it by my number of hours, I get a, a dollars per hour I'm paying myself, uh, and that's really kind of how I look at things. Now, one, one other thing I, I like to look at in here and something I encourage you to do is uh, a, a kind of a profit factor, a percentage of profit. And... Um, uh, you know, this is where economies of scale come into play. And that's not something you think about being a smaller operation. But I tell you what, economies of scale really do uh, play a big role when you're talking about something like a chicken. Um, so uh, if you get into Excel and you take the same uh, little uh, spreadsheet here and you, you make a bunch of copies of it and you just change the number of birds, uh, what you'll find is that your percentage of profit goes up the more birds you raise. And there are reasons for that. Uh, you have so many economies of scale that come into facts like the trip to the butcher. If I'm hauling 100 birds or 500 birds, it doesn't really matter. I've got a fixed amount of time and a fixed amount of fuel, and uh, I can amortize uh, those expenses and that time over 100 units or over 500 units. And if I amortize it over 500 units, then I, I make more money, okay? Um, so it, this is a, a neat tool to use. It can help you make management decisions, you know? So if you say, hey, we want to raise 500 chickens this year, um, and you say, you know, we're gonna, but we're going to do it in uh, two batches of 250. Well, I tell you what, if you look at your, your profit factor, it, it probably will change your mind to just do one big batch of 500 so long as you've got the room to store all those birds. Um, it really makes a big difference. It's something I would encourage you to look at. Now, things that are not in here, I don't have electricity from a walk-in freezer. I don't have the time I spend at the farmer's market. That's all on the sales side. That's really hard to measure. It, it's it's hard to say, well, you know, how many minutes did I s spend on average selling every chicken? I guess it's something you could kind of figure out. But I just look at the production side and the, the sales side. I look at it like a guy that's out selling cars. I mean, he might sell one car. He might sell 10 cars. You're just out doing the sales thing, and you got to sell stuff to make a living. That's kind of how I look at it. I know other guys have different opinions, but that's just me. Um, uh, you know, and then uh, with you know people with low prices, you didn't say where you were selling at. So if you're out just driving around the country and you see somebody selling eggs for a dollar fifty or two dollars a dozen, like th that is not a competitor. Okay, they're just they're not a competitor. They're probably just doing it for fun on the side. They're losing money on every dozen eggs. They have not done a cost analysis. And if they are trying to do it as a business, guess what? They're not going to be in business very long. So I would not worry about them. Your competitors are really going to be found at the farmer's market. Um, and like I said, you didn't say where you were selling, but let's, you know, just assume that you're at the farmer's market and you're looking around and you're like, oh my gosh, how are these people, you know, raising this product and, and selling it for that price? I just don't understand. So most likely there's, there's one of two things that's coming into play here. Uh, number one, they don't know how to use Excel. And we'll just go back to the example I gave at the beginning and they're losing money or not making very much money. 
Uh, or number two, they may not have raised it. They might have actually, you know, bought that chicken from some uh, cheap Amish CAFO or something, you know, not to, uh, you know, put a, a black eye on the Amish, but, you know, let's just say they, they bought it cheaply somewhere and they're reselling it at the farmer's market. Well, that's, that's a function of the farmer's market that's the problem. Um, we do a very careful analysis of where we sell at. So we're wanting to go into larger urban areas that are nicer into town where people have the financial means to support what we're doing. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking for vendor-only farmer's markets where reselling is not allowed. So that's just not an issue. Um, and that the markets are run well and managed well and marketed well. A lot of those things go away. Now, you're always going to have a range in pricing uh, at a farmer's market. You know, one of the farmer's markets I do, the range is about on a chicken is about 20 percent. So like the, you know, the cheapest guy is 20 percent less expensive than I am. And 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 uh, there's a whole range in between. And, you know, so like I'm aware of his prices. I really don't care what his prices are because I know what Excel tells me I need to sell my stuff for. Uh, the way I look at it is. Yeah, he might be 20% cheaper, but he's got to sell 25% more product to make the same amount of money as I do. And my approach has been simply, I'm just, I'm going to outmarket him. And so far, we have found that that's worked really well for us. So anyhow, those are my thoughts. I hope that you find this helpful and I just want to encourage you to keep on going and, uh, you know, just do a detailed cost analysis and break it all out and establish a solid price and stick with it. Uh, to learn more about me, please visit my website at DarbySimpson.com. Jack, thanks so much. Take care. I want to add in two quick things to that, um, to Darby's great comments there about this. And this applies to many types of small and home-based businesses and, and uh, mid-sized businesses even that you might run as a, as a sole proprietor or a very small company with two or three people working with you. The first is figuring out how much it costs you to sell a chicken or a widget or a carved um, wooden carved duck or whatever it is that you, you'd sell. doesn't matter. You cannot uh, attempt to do what Darby says he doesn't attempt to do, which is how much did it cost me to sell this chicken. What you can do is determine what your cost is in marketing and sales time. Total. At least monthly. And then you take that and you amateurize that across your, your, your gross sales and you come up with a percentage of average cost for marketing and that allows you to determine what your cost of marketing and sales is and determine whether or not your price is high enough to justify it. You can also then begin to break that down and say, well, it, going through this channel over here, we have to spend a lot of time with the customer. To, to get that first sale. So this is this is where the majority of the cost is in time and or money. And then you have to analyze that and say, okay, so since that's the case, when I win this type of customer, do they come back and become repeat customers? And if they do, then you can handle and absorb that higher cost. If they don't, you need to find your other channels that have lower costs and increase the efforts there because you have a much higher return. So that's how you balance that off. Now, going back to the original part of the question, this is something I hear from a lot of people. I talk to people all over the place that are selling chicken eggs and duck eggs specifically that say, you know, there's people down the road are selling for three bucks. Yeah? How many do they sell? And, and no one ever knows the answer to that question. How many customers do they have? How many birds do they have? If I call them up tomorrow and say, I want four dozen eggs, can I get them in the next two weeks? See, most of the people that are doing this are people that have gotten small flocks, but they overbought their flock. Okay? 
to, to what they thought they needed. And one day you look in the refrigerator and you realize you got the old refrigerator out in the garage is now full of eggs. And you start saying, well, I might as well sell these things. They're not running a business. They don't care if they make a profit. They just want to move the eggs out the door as quick as possible. That can be bad because it can hurt the pricing in a market, but they are not your competition if you're trying to make a living with eggs. Let's just run some numbers. Let's say you want to make a part-time income worth your time, worth your time with eggs, of let's say you want to make $500 a month. That's $6,000 a year. No one's going to make a living off of that, but it's a nice extra chunk of change. For a lot of people, it would be a significant part of their, their house payment, for instance. Okay, with my duck eggs, I have about $3 in cost into um, duck eggs that I sell for $7.50 a dozen. So I have a $4.50 cost or, or profit on those eggs. That means we have to move to make $500 a month, 111.1 dozen. Okay, 100, 100 dozen a month. We have to move to make $500 in profit. The person selling for $1.50 a dozen or $3 a dozen can't do that. Ever. Ever, 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 never infinity cannot produce 100 dozen eggs a month for any length of time unless they are a person with considerable economic resources that just likes to do it as their hobby. And I don't think it'll last very long because it's work to produce a hundred dozen eggs. Those hundred dozen eggs have to be collected. They have to be cleaned off. You really should be candling. We candle all our eggs at this point. They have to be packaged. They have to be put into a refrigerator. You have to do the front end work to market and sell them. You have to deliver them to your customer. You have to take the money. You have to go out and get feed. You have to bring the feed in. You have to clean out the cages. I mean, it's a lot of work to produce a hundred dozen eggs a month. It, it, you 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 can easily go from 100 to 200 dozen and not feel a big difference in the amount of work you have to do. It doesn't really feel that much different. But let me tell you what does feel different. Let me tell you what feels a lot different. Going from 10 to 20 dozen a week to 100. That's a big step. And these people selling at these low prices... They're not, they're not capable. They would go bankrupt in a single season if they tried it. Okay, so just kind of keep that in mind. So when you see these people selling cheap, don't worry about them. If one of your customers or potential customers mentions that, say go buy their eggs then. If you want a lower quality product, go buy their eggs. And make sure you're selling your eggs or your chickens or whatever. Have a good website. Tell your story. We're revamping our website right now. So that when, when people ask, you know, we, we now have eggs being sold to one of the coolest restaurants in the city, in Dallas-Fort Worth, man. Just an amazing, amazing restaurant that's posting pictures of their dish, which is a, a duck confit and sweet potato chip uh, dish within a big duck egg on the top of it. This is like one of their signature dishes. That's our egg. And we need to feature that so that when somebody says, well, why are your duck eggs eight bucks a dozen if I raise the price of these things, which I'm probably going to do? Because this is the quality of our product. This is where our product is. And when you want product, we have product. That's why. That's why our price is there. I don't have to apologize for my product, and I don't have to apologize for the price on it. And if you want to buy the guy on Craigslist that's selling them for four bucks a dozen, go ahead. And if you go back next week, see if he still has them. 
And you know, we're running a business with a customer service front that takes care of our customers. There you can come here and look. I mean, so never let these people drag your pricing down. And and like I said when, at the beginning of this one, this isn't about ducks or chickens or agriculture. This is business. These are business principles. And this is why Darby's successful in agriculture, even though his background is as an engineer. He's running it as a business. The ag component, it's just the product. It's just the service. It's just the thing. Business principles are universal. Let's take another one. This one, um, we're going to go to Nick Ferguson now from Adam. says, I'm looking for a permaculture answer to field bindweed. It's a perennial version of morning glory. It has roots that go as deep as 40 feet. And there's a rhizome, so when you pull it out, it multiplies from the roots left in the ground. Also, seeds are viable for up to 60 years. My main problem is in a contour garden bed that I put in at our new house. I roto-tilled it to break up the sod and to spread out the roots all over. Everyone says to use Roundup, but I'm trying to avoid that for obvious reasons. Any help would be appreciated. I'd really appreciate it if you would... Uh, okay, and I'll go ahead and, uh, and play Nick's answer, and I have a little thing for you there from Nick uh, after his answer. <laughs> yes. The lovely bindweed or creeping jenny. Well, it's actually going to be near impossible to get rid of until you drastically alter your soil makeup and are very diligent with maintenance. Seeds will stay dormant in the soil likely longer than you will be alive. They can stay dormant for like up to 50 years or something like that. You can't ever let the vines get more than a foot or two in length. Chop them back to the ground and remove it from your garden because it's a vector for solanum viruses. The solanums are your tomatoes, peppers, potatoes, etc. Most people like to grow those. So that's pretty much all you can do from a direct approach unless you're willing to use herbicides. And those don't work a whole lot better than the approach I just gave you. Um, something that I'm doing with my kids is putting out a bounty on pesky weeds and insects. A nickel apiece, a penny apiece, whatever works for you. And it doesn't take long to put a real hurt on the weed population without putting a hurt on your wallet. And the kids really have fun collecting their rewards, so that's what I'm doing. Almost always, the main answer, though, when someone asks me a question about a pest, be it insect or disease, the soil is almost always the issue. Soil health. So I have a recipe for you that works fantastically well. Now, granted, I'm no Elaine Ingham, but this works for me. Lay these ingredients in layers on the ground, like lasagna, in the order that I'm going to give them to you. Number one, half an inch of compost or manure, preferably rabbit or goat manure. If you have it, use manure. If you don't, don't worry about it. The manure is a bonus if you have it. Number two, a quarter of an inch of any seed meal or half an inch of laying pellets or rabbit pellets. So most people have a feed store somewhere near them where they can at least buy laying pellets or rabbit pellets or some kind of ground-up seed. It's pretty cheap when you really think about it, and it's worm food. It's going to break down into bacteria food. It's going to break down a little bit slower than one of the next ingredients that I'm going to give you, and it's kind of the backbone of this formula. Number three, eighth of an inch of bone meal. Number four, an eighth of an inch of dried molasses or one gallon of liquid molasses per 100 to 200 square feet. And the molasses is food for bacteria. Number five, a dusting of garden lime. Just 
dust some garden lime on it. Number six, dust some rock phosphate on it. Number seven, a sprinkling of forest floor leaf mold. This is indigenous microorganisms. If you don't have forest on your property, go somewhere within a couple miles. That's a healthy forest that's not getting sprayed with junk. And take a little bit here and a little bit there so you don't, you know, just devastate this big square footage area. But take some of that forest floor leaf mold. You scrape the leaves off, the, the top leaves that haven't decayed. You take the leaf mold and you put the top leaves back on it so you're covering that soil back up. Don't desecrate the forest like that. Leave it in a decent shape like you found it. But it's okay to harvest some of that stuff. Number eight, add some earthworms, not red wigglers like real earthworms. Number nine, water it down real well. Number ten, cover it with a minimum of four inches of wood chips or four inches of chopped leaves or 12 inches of whole leaves or eight inches of straw. This should get your soil off to a great start, and this process will even turbocharge already great soils. This is the exact same process I go through when building new beds from new ground. I repeat the same process every late summer before the winter growing season for two years after that initial year, and I have awesome soils. You can take rock-solid soils, compacted, just awful soils, and in two years have soil so loose and friable that you can shove your arm all the way up to your elbow in the soil. Get your soil healthy and you'll have fewer problems all around. Keep chopping those vines until they use up all the stores of energy in their roots. That's what you're doing when you chop them. You're, you're letting them put all their energy into making up a new shoot, new vine, and then you chop it and you steal that energy from the root stores. And eventually the roots wither up and there's nothing left and they just die. And if you've done this to your soil and you've improved the soil and it's nice and healthy, you'll have far fewer of those weeds germinating. Good luck with your gardening, Adam. For more info about me and for contact info, if you need one-on-one consulting, head over to permacultureclassroom.com. Talk to you guys next week. I got one little addition for Nick. Nick wanted me to let you guys know that he's going to be in North Alabama in a couple of weeks. And if anybody's interested in consulting in the North Alabama area, his price will be significantly lower since he's already going to be in the area anyway. And you can learn more about how to work with Nick by going to permacultureclassroom.com. And uh, you can link to that in today's show notes. You'll see Nick and his website listed there with all of the other experts in their websites. But great stuff from Nick. Let's move on to a different subject. We were pretty deep there into the ag stuff, so time to move away from that for a bit. Let's talk to Gary Collins uh, today. Gary has a question from Matthew. Matthew says, can eating paleo or primal help lower my cholesterol? I've been eating good for 40 years now. My waist is showing that. I'm an adventurous eater. My family doctor is telling me my cholesterol is high. I do not want to go on medication. Can the paleo lifestyle lower my cholesterol? And if so, can you explain how, please? And I think that's something a lot of people don't get. How can eating all of this meat and all of this fat lower your cholesterol? That's not what the government says. Gary, what do you say? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And today we have a question about cholesterol and if you can lower your cholesterol with the paleo diet and primal lifestyle. Yeah, it's a great question, actually, and I've been asked that uh, several times in the past. And I'll give you the simple answer, and that is yes. 
but I want to explain why and how. When we look at cholesterol today, we usually correlate it directly with coronary heart disease. We've been told that if your cholesterol is, if you ingest too much cholesterol, your cholesterol is high, you're going to die of a heart attack, basically. Well, there's a lot of misinformation uh, when it comes to cholesterol and how it works in the body. So I want to talk to you a little bit and have you understand how it works in the body because the question also indicated that it appears that his doctor said that his cholesterol was high and seemed to be leaning towards putting him on statins or cholesterol-lowering medication. And he didn't want to do that, and I don't blame him. Uh, cholesterol is produced in the liver. Cholesterol is incredibly important to the human body. Matter of fact, if we did not have cholesterol, we would die immediately. 25% of our total cholesterol is found in our brain. Um, it's also used in, in to synthesize vitamin D3, which is then turned into sex hormones. So you can see that cholesterol is vitally important, not only that, but for our cell wall integrity. Uh, without Without cholesterol, our cells would actually collapse upon themselves. Well, when we look at it today as far as coronary heart disease, cholesterol works in this way. What we have is epithelial cells which line our our blood vessels and also the main organs of our body or all organs of our body. And these tissues can become damaged. And it's the best way to look at it is as like a nick. Um, think of it as an abrasion on your skin. Well, that same thing is occurring, uh, these epithelial cells in our tissues. And cholesterol goes and repairs it. This is normal wear and tear in our body. So the, the liver will release LDL, which is considered the bad cholesterol, low-density lipoproteins. And I'll get into more why there is no good and bad cholesterol, really. I mean, the way they state it today in modern medicine. So that will go out, and it works in conjunction with uh, saturated fat, another villain, right? Um, and it works, and it repairs that tissue. And it'll create, just like on your skin, a scab. And that's considered a plaque is what they call that. In the normal repair process, that will then diminish and then go away. And then what comes back is HDL, is what they consider the good cholesterol. Um, that comes back into the liver and the process will continue and go round and round. That's how we do it. And the way they analyze cholesterol levels is they take your total cholesterol of your HDL and LDL. And that's how you get your, the number. And the magic number has been, you know, if your cholesterol is at 200, you're considered high. Well, that's been found to be completely false. And that number, actually, no one today even knows where they got that number. Um, there's no statistical evidence that people with a, anything below 330, actually, that that level of cholesterol will actually contribute to heart disease. So, 330 is pretty high. Actually, I've only met a couple people that had cholesterol in that range in my entire life. Now, that is high. But when it comes to 200, that's normal. My cholesterol is anywhere from 190. It's been as high as 210, I think, maybe 220. Um, and that is completely normal. They did all my other blood work, screened me, and they said, you're as healthy as an Olympic athlete. But your cholesterol is a little high, and they were hinting. I've been hinted several times that I maybe should take a statin. I'm all absolutely not. Um, so with that, you have to ask your doctor 
there's important ratios that you can ask about. Now, if you have VLDL, which is very low density lipoprotein, that is a true indicator of either heart disease or future heart disease. So you want to ask what your levels of VLDL are. And also when it comes to uh, your cholesterol level, ask about your HDL to cholesterol ratio. So that is, and you can do this on your own, but it should be within your blood profile when they take it. And that is you divide your HDL by your total cholesterol. This number should be 25% or higher. If it's below that, especially around the 10% mark, that is definitely an indicator of heart disease or future heart disease. Then your triglyceride level, and that is you divide your HDL or you divide your triglyceride number by your HDL number, and that should be below two. Those are the numbers you want to look at, and any good doctor or cardiologist will know these numbers. I've actually had blood tests where a doctor knew those numbers, and they they went, yeah, your cholesterol's a little high, but all your ratios are outstanding, and they just went right past it. That is a good doctor when they understand those levels. Also, another uh, thing you want to look at is your fasting blood sugar. That is a really good indicator as well because that's going to be about inflammation. So anything around 100 to 125 is not good. Your, your, your fasting blood sugar level should be 80 or below. That's the magic number. So you want to look at that as well. And also, one of the biggest indicators for coronary heart disease and just poor health is your waist size. I've talked about this in the past. And I've done a ton of research on this, and they've done studies. You can be skinny and have a big waist, and it doesn't matter. That big waist is going to be a bigger indicator as opposed to the rest of the, the fat on the rest of your body. In general, uh, you know, obviously there's other people that may have some certain conditions that may cause them to store abnormal levels of fat around their waist, but that is very, 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 very rare. So now you get that, how cholesterol works in the body. Well, okay, obviously the paleo diet is an anti-inflammatory diet. Now you now know that inflammation is going to cause abnormally high cholesterol levels. So... How do you look at that? Okay, so if you're doing an anti-inflammatory diet, obviously your cholesterol levels will go down. But if you're fairly healthy, like I was, and I was eating a paleo diet without even knowing it was truly a paleo diet. I made some tweaks over the years and refined it even more. But my cholesterol levels really didn't change that much. They were always pretty much the same because I was living as healthy as I knew at the time as I could. Now, for people who are not living healthy, you will notice a pretty uh, dramatic difference in your cholesterol levels if they are high. For the most part, this is in general. Again, everyone's different. There's always an anomaly here or there. Now, so with the primal lifestyle, obviously you're de-stressing. You know, we're getting more in touch, mindfulness, not stressing out about things that we can't control you know, eating the proper foods, getting proper exercise, going outside, getting sunlight. These all contribute to a healthy lifestyle. And this, if you have high cholesterol, will help lower your cholesterol levels. Because if you're putting a ton of stress and inflammation in your body, that LDL is going to be going out even faster and faster. Because it's got to get out there and repair these these damaged tissues. But with that, remember, blood tests are also a snapshot of t- in that time. 
So if you go out and you run a marathon, uh, you know, a couple days before, and then you go get your blood work, there's a good chance your cholesterol is going to be high because you've, you've gone out and done this athletic performance, which is, you know, going out and, uh, putting a lot of stress on your body and then your body needs to repair. So you have to be careful with the timing too. If you did something that was athletically vigorous before you went and had your blood work or right before, there's a good chance your cholesterol is going to be elevated. So I just hope that helps and kind of clarifies some of the issues and questions. Um, statins are incredibly popular. That are the top in the top five of all drugs prescribed in the world. It is a multi, 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 multi-billion dollar business. When I worked for the FDA, it was number one counterfeited drug when I was doing counterfeit investigations. And that was because it's big, big money. So remember that. That number, probably that 200 number, came with collusion between the medical community and the drug community. And they went, okay, where is everyone's cholesterol levels right around? And they went, oh, right around 200. And next thing you know, magically, everyone's on statin drugs. Imagine that. And they have a whole host of negative side effects. You do not want to take these drugs unless absolutely necessary. Like I said, if your cholesterol is in that 300, 330 range climbing, you then statins do make sense because you need to bring that cholesterol down. Now, obviously, you must do this in conjunction with discussing your doctor. I'm not a doctor. Disclaimer. But just to give you an idea that um, statins have side effects that are very negative, and all the studies have proven that they do not prevent heart attacks. There is no statistical evidence that they do anything of the sort. Again, so I hope that helps and clarifies uh, the question that you had on the paleo and primal lifestyle and cholesterol. I'm not going to add to that one because I'll go off on a 15-minute rant agreeing and expanding on and getting very, very angry and upset. Um, I just learned some things that I didn't know that just make this issue worse. Um, but I, I really believe what Gary's kind of alluding to there that the the number that's become high for cholesterol – is a number that creates more sales, not a number that actually needs medication. I believe that's the case about blood pressure, too. I believe that we're medicating blood pressure way before it gets there. Maybe Gary will talk about that one in the future. Um, but let's go on to something completely different, keeping up the variety of these shows. Let's talk to Stephen Harris now. Stephen, uh, can you discuss your preps you, you take with you when you travel out of state on an airline? And can't rely on uh, just keeping what you have, you know, having what you do in your vehicle kit, where you can obviously carry a lot more. What do you always make sure you have when you travel? What are you willing to do without, etc.? Mr. Harris, what say you, sir? Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Council calling in to answer your question. Oh, God, Jack, I could spend an hour on this subject. You know, i got ten minutes. It's not just what I have in an emergency kit that I take with me. It's what I also have on me and in different places like my computer bag, I mean, my carry-on in my check-in. Let me explain. First, what the heart of a lot of what I have in the energy area is the Power Packs battery holders, P-O-W-E-R-P-A-X. They can hold AA, AAA, CD, 9-volt, 18650s. They have them all for any battery you want. It's the number one way to protect and carry a battery. And these are, and everything I'm going to be talking about here, most everything is in the travel section of 
prep1234.com, P-R-E-P-1234.com, so you can go there and see almost everything. I have with me four AA Energizer lithium batteries and a four AA Power Packs holder. I have four AA Nickel Metal Hydride batteries and a Power Packs holder, plus I have one AA in a headlamp and two AA's in the Maglite flashlight. And then for AAAs, I have six AAA nickel metal hydride batteries and a power packs holder, all charged up before I leave. Plus, I have three nickel metal hydride, hydride AAA batteries in my Energizer headlamp. Then I have six AA Energizer lithium batteries. Again, these are AAA in a power packs holder. So I always have the nickel metal hydride batteries to use immediately and I can use them, recharge them, use them, recharge them. And if those go to, go to crap or I run out of those, I can always switch over to the Energizer or Lithium AA or AAA batteries. Either way, I have small, compact, and I have redundancy. I had to go with AAA just because all the headlamps use them and uh, the, the, the headlamps that I want to use that are so reliable use them. For light, I have four total lights. I have a, a Phoenix or a Fenix 1AA headlamp. It has three levels of brightness to it. Uh, the very low level that I use for reading at night, uh, again, runs off a of 1AA battery. It's on prep1234.com. I have the famous and incredibly tough Energizer headlamp that takes three AA, three AAA batteries. It's unbreakable and only about $17, and it's on the same website. I have the 1AA Fenix headlamp, and it's in, in, in my kit. The Energizer headlamp is in my computer carry-on bag with me, along with, uh, a six, six double, tro, sorry, along with six AA, sorry, six AAA batteries in a power packs holder. Uh, and I have six lithiums in there, not six nickel metal hydrides in my carry-on. If I get stranded without my check-in bags, I got plenty of light. I also have a two AA LED maglite flashlight in the emergency kit that's in my check-in, and then I have my everyday carry, which is a Coast HP1 flashlight. This is on prep one two three four. It's ten bucks. It's an indestructible. I've carried a one double A Coast flashlight in my pocket for over ten years. This travels with me on the plane. This light takes either one double A nickel metal hydride, one double A alkaline, or one double A energizer lithium, or it takes a fourteen five hundred lithium ion rechargeable battery. One light on me, one light in the, in the computer case, two in the check in. To recharge, I have a GS Yaso, Y-U-A-S-A, nickel metal hydride battery charger. It's on the PrEP website as well. It charges up to two nickel metal hydride batteries at once. It can do AA or AAA. It can do one battery at a time if needed, which is rare in these type of chargers. It runs off a of USB power, which I have plenty of. So if I use up a bit of my AA or AAA nickel metal hydride batteries, I can top them off overnight with this charger. If I have to charge from dead to full, it can take 24 hours in this charger for two AA batteries. But I have plenty of spares, so I can afford to have a small, lightweight charger that charges slowly off of USB. I carry two USB chargers. One is two-port Clever uh, high-output charger on, on the PrEP website. 
It has its 120 volt prongs fold in for easy stowage. I carry a three foot and a six foot USB charging cable with me, a good high quality one. I also have a four port clever 12 volt cigarette lighter car USB charger. At the hotel or on the go, I can charge my phone, tablet, nickel metal hydride batteries, or my lime fuel battery. Now, the lime fuel battery is a 20,000 milliampere hour battery pack that costs 30 bucks and it's on prep1234.com. This comes, this comes with me on the laptop, in the laptop computer bag with me on the plane. If I have a five hour flight and I get stuck on a runway for eight hours, I want enough battery to power my tablet and my phone for Amazon Kindle reading, for movie watching, for reading the news, for calling, texting, and doing anything that I need to do to get my rear end off that damn stranded plane. I'm not going to run out of power. This battery can recharge my phone about 10 times. Yeah, I said it. $30 battery pack recharged my phone 10 times. In my computer bag is a 15-foot two-wire lamp cord extension cord. This was the one that has one plug on it and three uh, other uh, receivers on the, on the other end for receiving plugs. I carry two three-prong to two-prong adapters plus two three-way cubes. If you want to see what these look like, they're on prep one, two, three, four. This is for my computer to plug into anything in the airport or hotel and get me away from the pillar so the kids can sit there and I can sit away and we can all be plugged in at the same time. Plus, I can now put my USB chargers next to me on the nightstand at the hotel. I have a cable that allows me to clamp on to any 12-volt car battery and has a cigarette lighter plug on the end, so I can plug in any of my 12-volt USB chargers and charge them from the open hood of a car or a cigarette lighter inside the car. I have a Sawyer water filter that goes with me everywhere, and it screws onto any water bottle or soda soda bottle, plus it has these great roll-up 64-ounce water bags. It's less than 30 bucks. It's on Prep 1234. It does 100,000 gallons of water. I carry a lot of stuff in one-gallon Ziploc bags, so any of these bags can hold extra water for me if I want more water storage. Before I get on the plane, I usually buy two bottles of water and two large Snickers bars, so if I empty the water bottles, I take them with me to the hotel. At the hotel, I try to buy two large bottles of water, one to one and a half liters. I'll drink those while I'm there, and I'll keep the empties in a drawer and just in case I need to have more water storage so I can put cleaner, dirty water into them. I can purify pool water in a snap with this thing. Also for food, I have six Soldier Fuel food bars in my carry-on computer bag. No one ever detects them. These are great energy bars, but they don't have that damn way chalky aftertaste, so everything of mine is just not in a kit. It's what I carry in different bags, different places, and I have dual use for different things uh, in the bag and with me and at the hotel. I have a four-inch Swiss Army knife with me and with the usual stuff on it. I have a small knife sharpener that weighs nothing. I have a Gerber multi-tool, but I'm not a big multi-tool fan. I have a cigarette lighter, Bic, of course, and I have a mini blast match, which makes the hottest sparks ever. That's in case the lighter gets wet. I also have a reciprocating saw blade about five inches long that will cut through anything metal or brick. Plus, I have a dowel rod with some one-inch Gorilla tape rolled up on it, some picture hanger wire, and some string and 550 cord. This is the majority of what I have, and it changes with me where I go and for how long I'll be gone, so it's a partial list. 
prep1234.com, solar1234.com, battery1234.com has all of these. Also, my brand new, uh, scout stove is out. It's a 12 ounce, 12 ounce backpacking stove. Runs off twigs off the ground, carry the stove, not the fuel. It's at scoutstove.com. And if you can't remember that, scoutstove.com is also listed on the website where I have everything I have done with Jack, which is steven1234.com. Sorry for the rush, but I had to get all this stuff in there for you. There's other things that I carry, which maybe we'll talk about on another show. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Bye. You know, we haven't had Steven on for quite a while, and it might be a good idea to have him on to talk about this very subject and get more into uh, some other stuff that I know he carries along the lines of, you know, the medical stuff that he carries, et cetera, with him uh, when he's on travel, because that's one of the things that can really be important as well. Anyway, with that, let's go to another question. Uh, let's move to the financial realm. Uh, listener Don asked uh, John Pugliano, uh, John, you po- talked about buying dollar-backed ETFs. Can you discuss how this is different than just holding dollars? And if dollar-backed ETFs make a profit, how do they do so if they're just dollars? Hello, TSP listeners. Don's question is a follow-up to some of the statements I've made recently about taking two different and distinct positions. One is moving to cash, which as Don puts it, is holding dollars. And the other position involves speculating on the increased value of the U.S. dollar. So let me quickly explain the differences. Holding cash dollars or moving to a cash position is a defensive move that you do when you feel that you're at a market top or perhaps the market has gotten a little overheated or overvalued and you're concerned about some type of a pullback. So you sell your traditional positions of stocks or bonds or mutual funds or ETFs or whatever you hold. You take your profits and you go to cash. Now, you're not literally holding dollar bills. That cash would be put into whatever type of cash equivalent fund is available in your 401k, your IRA, or whatever type of brokerage accounts you have. So it may be a money market fund, a short-term government bond fund. So that's what I mean by taking a cash position, parking your money in cash. You've taken your profits. You're worried about a pullback. And so by keeping your money in cash in this money market fund or this short-term government bond fund, And by doing this, you've really reduced your overall risk. And really, at this point, the only thing that you would be susceptible to would be having your money devaluated because of inflation. Now, while inflation is always a clear and present danger, the one and a half or two percent erosion of your savings that you may lose to inflation over the period of a year is probably going to be much less of a threat than the 15 or 20 percent pullback that you may be fearing when you're invested in stocks or bonds. So that's why you would move to a cash or a dollar position. It's only for safety. It's just there to park your money until you can find better options. Now let's switch gears here and let's talk about actually speculating in the appreciation of the value of the U.S. dollar. And in Don's question, he mentions that I've talked about doing that using exchange-traded funds. They have professional management. They trade just like a stock. It's easy for me to get in and out of them, and I would prefer to do it that way. So if you think the U.S. dollar is going to appreciate, one way to do that would be to invest in the exchange-traded fund with the ticker symbol UUP. That's Uniform Uniform Papa. It rises and falls based on the value of the U.S. dollar when compared to a basket of other currencies. And this gets to the essence of Don's question. He wants to know how do these ETFs profit by investing in the U.S. dollar. 
And so what you have to remember with currencies is, is that everything is relative. Because you may be saying to yourself, well, hey, the United States currency, it's fiat, it's based on debt. Our central bank keeps on printing more money. Our government keeps running more deficits. Well, why would you want to invest in the U.S. dollar? How can it possibly appreciate in value? Well, remember the old story about you and your friend are being chased by a bear in the woods? And the punchline to that joke is that you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than your friend. Well, that's the same thing with a national currency's appreciation or depreciation. So for the U.S. dollar to appreciate in value, it doesn't have to become more valuable than gold or silver or some other precious metal. On a comparative basis, it just has to become more valuable than the Japanese yen or the Australian dollar or the numerous other currencies that it's traded against. So when we talk about the U.S. dollar appreciating and being able to make a profit on it, that occurs by the dollar being traded against these numerous other currencies. So in the world of currency exchanges, it truly is a zero-sum gain. The dollar appreciates relative to the fact that the yen is depreciating and relative to the fact that the Chinese RMB would be depreciating. One of the ways that occurs is that our economy would be growing stronger or faster than the other economies, or our central bank would be printing and debasing our currency less so than the other central banks are debasing their currencies. The reason that I'm so optimistic about the U.S. dollar right now isn't because I have a lot of faith or respect for our central bank or for our government. It's just that I see the other governments around the world misbehaving more than we are. So, for example, if you've noticed with the recent crash in the Chinese stock market, their government is doing everything they can. They're pulling out every stop and bending every rule to shore up and protect that market. And as a result of that, they're devaluating their currency by well over $1 trillion just in the past, say, four weeks. I don't see practices like that in China stopping anytime soon. So I think the Chinese RMB over the next few months to possibly year will be devalued in relation to the U.S. dollar. The same way with the euro. The problems with Greece aren't over, and whether Greece is in or out of the European Union, or whether Greece defaults or doesn't default, the bottom line is, is that the Greek government is insolvent, and at some point, at some time, someone is going to have to cover that $250 billion debt or, or whatever it is that they have. And so that means that the European Central Bank is going to have to continue to print more money to cover that debt and then also to protect the other countries in southern Europe, like Italy and Portugal and Spain. That will result in a further devaluation of the euro in relation to the dollar. So again, that's how the dollar gets stronger. Many of you are probably very concerned that we have very high deficits in the United States. Our gross federal government debt is over 100% of GDP. In fact, it's probably 106 or 107% over our gross domestic product. Now, you're concerned about that, you're worried about that, and rightly so. But if you look over to Japan, the third largest economy in the world, their federal government debt to GDP ratio is 238%. Now, ours is 106%, theirs is 238 so again, there's an example of another government that's in worse shape than us further devaluating their currency. And as the Japanese yen devaluates and gets debased, the United States dollar comparatively is worth more. And so that's an example of how these exchange-traded funds like UUP can make a profit in the U.S. dollar by trading it against a basket of other currencies. Now, the U.S. dollar has done quite well. So far, year-to-date, it's up almost 6.5%, and in the last 12 months, it's up nearly 18%. I think the U.S. dollar has further room to run. 
But again, please be advised, this is only my opinion. It's a speculative investment. It would be subject to a loss if the current trend falls apart, and it's not a safe investment like holding individual cash would be. Well, Don, I hope that answers your question. If you'd like to hear more of my commentary on the stock market or learn more about wealth building principles, then be sure and check out the Wealth Steading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Well, there you go. Um, in other words, it is not a set it and forget it type of investment. This is an investment specifically for when the dollar will appreciate against currencies in other countries like it has been doing recently. And I think it's really important to understand John's underlying message here. There's the best analogy I've ever heard about the joke about the bear. For those who have never heard the joke about the bear, the, 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 there's a joke that there's two guys camping. And there's a bear coming, and they realize the bear is coming for them. One guy grabs his shoes and slips them on really quick, and the guy says, do you think you can outrun that bear? And he says to his buddy, no, but I can outrun you, and that's good enough. Because whoever gets the bear, the bear gets to first is the one with the real problem. And the bear is going to stop there, and then you, de you develop a, a ratio of distance between the two. And that's how a dollar ETF makes a profit. So... It's also important to look at the ETF itself, who's managing it, and what the strategy for that is. Not all, in other words, if you buy a silver ETF, um, they all perform pretty well the same. Okay. Uh, John mentioned UUP as a dollar uh, ETF that he uses, and it does what it does. But as you can see, different dollar ETFs that might be managed by different money managers with different ratios of dollars leveraged against different currency baskets might perform dramatically differently. And if you look up various dollar, and there's more than one, various dollar ETFs, you'll see that, indeed, there is some pretty good variance. But right now, the dollar has done well. Uh, and, you know, to give John some kudos, he started talking about dollar ETFs as a way to invest very early this year, uh, and they've done well. They've done very well this year, uh, comparative to kind of a, what's the word I use, bipolar stock market has. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take a question now for Jeff Lawton. Jeff, can you describe the considerations a person should make when designing a home for a new build? Stuff like site location and materials are important, uh, but you can also discuss positioning of rooms based on things like solar aspect. Uh, every home that I've ever had up until this one, you know, unfortunately my home office was in a part of the house. It was like the hottest part of the house. I didn't get to design it, but if I was designing my own, I'd sure do that differently. And uh, can you talk about this specifically as it relates to uh, temperate climates, cool to warm temperate climates where we have you know, warm to hot summers and, and, and cool to very cold winters? Uh, what say you, Jeff, on designing a home when we're starting from scratch? Hi, Jeff Lawton here, and I'm here to answer a question in relation to designing a home for a new build. And um, stuff like location, well, obviously, uh, we're dealing here, as I've uh, been told, for a temperate climate, which has cold winters and still quite hot summers. So that sounds like a temperate climate that's quite a long way from an ocean. When I'm doing a climate analog, I'm always first off looking at what is your latitude and distance from the equator, the latitude north or south, um, What is the altitude, uh, distance uh, above sea level? Because every hundred meters is like one latitude away from the equator. And uh, what is the distance from the ocean, which is the continental effect? Uh, as you move away from the ocean, you lose the moderating effect of the ocean, so you get cooler winters, colder winters, and hotter um, extreme temperatures in summer. 
So um, this is for a cool to cold climate, still with hot summers, cold winters, and um, you really need to be facing the sun. So in the northern hemisphere, that's the south, and you don't want to be very many degrees off south. And um, you need a long uh, wall house really facing the sun and not so deep so your your sun facing wall should have at least the same percentage of windows as your latitude so if you're at latitude 50 that means 50 percent of your sun facing wall should have should be glass and if you're in a cold climate that's best if that's double glazed and then that's the side you would also put a uh, solar heated glass house on um, now that can be double glazed as well. The materials, well, in the cold climates, you definitely want insulated outer walls. So um, you want a good R-rated wall, straw bale being one of the best, of course. Um, but you want something that uh, doesn't pass the cold through or the heat or doesn't let the heat out. So you want a hyper-insulated outer wall and you need thermal mass on the inside so you need to encapsulate the thermal mass inside the building and insulate the outer wall so you can use the thermal mass to capture heat and release it slowly and efficiently in the house or capture cool in the summer if it's nicely shaded so thermal mass can be used as a heat capture or a cool capture now if you're in the real cold you can actually put down deep footings going down into the ground and you can insulate the inner wall of the footings so that you have, you have a, a, an encapsulated thermal mass of earth under the house, which will gain an extra heat gain. Um, now, if you have a glass house, you can, on the sun side, it can be set up to be very well ventilated and shaded with deciduous trees or deciduous vines in summer, but in winter, it can be sealed down, locked down, double glazed, have thermal mass in the floor and be slightly lower than the floor of the house and heat will rise into the house. So you'll have air in convected heat actually rising into the house. Plus, you can have conductivity of heat through thermal mass connection with the um, stone or tiles or um, concrete connection to the floor of the house and that's best being thermal mass as well stone concrete tiles um, and so it will conduct through and then that heat can radiate into the house from the thermal mass these houses need to be long on the east-west axis and not so wide on the north-south axis south-north axis because the sun needs to penetrate into the house and help heat up the central thermal mass wall. Now that's the long wall that, that runs right down the middle of the house. And, and you need to make sure that the mid-day, mid-winter sun angle is taken into consideration so that the sun can penetrate through those windows on the sun side in far enough in midwinter to help heat the thermal mass you've got encapsulated by the well insulated walls also the overhang over that side needs to and all sides needs to be wide enough to 
protect the house from the midday, midsummer sun. So you've got two sun, sun angles to bring in the calculations on the build. One is the midday, midwinter sun angle and the midday, midsummer sun angle. And both of those sunrise, sunset angles, because they change as well. Now, there's great uh, smartphone app apps like Sunseeker that will give you that anywhere on site and even give you the sun track for any day of the year or the day you're holding the phone on that site. So they're great. They're great computer programs that will help you do this very well today. Now, you have a division of rooms in a house, and, and they are quite obvious. The hot rooms and the daytime use rooms are all on the sun side of the house. And the, cool, the naturally cool rooms and mostly nighttime use rooms are on the shade side of the house. So in the northern hemisphere, the shade side is the north side, and that's where you have your bedrooms, bathrooms, laundry, and toilets. And maybe that's where you have your mud room as well, where your transition room, where you um, take off your boots, you, <laughs> um, you take off your coat, yeah. Um, you have your gun cupboard, <laughs> you might have a, a laundry sink or your, your, you might have a room where you can bring in some poultry and maybe process. Um, you could maybe um, pluck and gut a, a chicken there or, or, or process a fish. It's a kind of inside to outside transition room that, that doesn't need to be as well heated but is a sort of airlock before you come in and derobe, take most of your dirty gear off and get into the house. Um, it, it's kind of used to be called the scullery. It's a mud room, and it does often protrude out from the from the house on the shade side, northern hemisphere, north side. Now, on the sun side of the house, you definitely want the kitchen on that side. And if you're an early morning kitchen, the sun side on the eastern side, because that's sunrise in all hemispheres. And then. Um, you also need the living room, the lounge room, the dining room, any work rooms, office rooms, um, and, and, your, and your general daytime rooms. And depending whether you're an evening person, a late afternoon person, or a, or a morning person, you can you can change the 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 um, the end of the house that you orientate each of those different rooms. Um, now, if you're in a real hot climate in summer. You, may ha you might have to be careful about the western wall because the western wall can stack a lot of summer heat and the late afternoon heat can radiate back in the house. So still well insulated on the western wall, limited windows well designed and deciduous trees or vines on the western wall as well as the sun wall. And you've got yourself a pretty nice house. Now, if you really do suffer from some extra heat, usually these climates of the cold temperate are more cold uh, threatened let's say or more cold discomfort if you really have some heat discomfort because you are a long way inland you've got a big uh, uh, difference between summer and winter and you've got that continental heat gain a long way from an ocean you could also have a shade house on the shade wall that's got a slightly higher floor than the house and you can have misters going there in winter uh, shaded uh, cool uh, temperatures and you can drop cool air in during, su uh, during summer and you can vent those off and shut them down in winter so they don't affect it in winter. Um, you also can use big heavy curtains on the sun side uh, 
insulating any any summer heat gain if it is that hot in summer. And if you really want to go the full nine yards, you could also have a, um, a cold air pipe coming in on the south side and a solar chimney on the north side sucking um, hot air from the roof and up out of uh, the house through this through uh, a chimney in the ceiling that's a black metal pipe matte black metal pipe about um eight to ten foot long with a rain cap on top you can you can close it off in winter insulate it off but in summer that hot black metal pipe in midday and, and hot days gets hot hot air rises sucks the air through the house from the cold air pipe on the opposite side of the house coming at least three to four foot underground for about 60 feet from a cold source somewhere out on the south side. And and you can't do a lot better than that. Just make sure your house isn't too wide, north-south, and you've got that thermal mass wall running right the way through, um, insulated all the way round with good R-rated material, thermal mass captured inside, if you've got a wood stove or a pizza oven in that wall or all your, all your fires um, in that central wall, they'll radiate heat to your, to your south and your north sides, heat your bedrooms and your living rooms, your daytime rooms and your nighttime rooms, and you'll have a real nice comfortable house and you can laugh at everybody that's got huge energy bills. Okay, hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Great questions. Talk to you soon. Jeff Lawton. Cheers. Thanks a lot to Jeff. Jeff actually asked me for clarification. The reason he chose the temperate climate is because it's where I live, and it's the climate most analogous to where I live, and he's right. I'm pretty far from the sea. Um, there are two other major climate types. One would be humid tropics, would, would be not just tropics, but any humid, hot, hot most of the year, warm most of the year climate, uh, and then dry, arid, hot Okay, so hot. And he suggested that he might do two more in a series here for you guys um, where he gives the design considerations for a home in both of those other two main climate types. Or I can ask him another question altogether. It's up to you guys. Let me know in the show notes today for uh, episode 1615. And I will uh, take your guidance on where we go forward with Jeff Lawton. Jeff, by the way, guys, is somebody that's like an amazing guy to have on the council. It's, it's kind of ridiculous that we have Jeff on our council. Um, and I don't get a ton of questions for Jeff. So if you have questions for Jeff, get them in. Quite a few times I've had to make up a question like I did this week for Jeff. Uh, Jeff's as approachable as any of our other council members. He's an outstanding guy that really wants to help serve uh, this community. So send in your questions for Jeff Lawton. Next question I have is for Chef Keith Snow. This is your warning. If you haven't eaten yet today, you're probably going to be really hungry by the time he's done answering. This one comes from Dustin. He says, my sister was given a deer leg and a deer shoulder last fall and has kept it in her freezer. This is a white-tailed deer, if that matters. She wants to do something with them but doesn't know how to cook each piece. Could you please provide some advice on how to cook each item? She is looking for her big brother to save the day, and I'd appreciate it if you could help me with this. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Dustin with the deer meat. Hey, man, uh, I'm glad you're trying to help out your sister. And uh, I feel like Dr. Phil or Dave Ramsey here trying to trying to solve a big challenge in 10 minutes. Um, even got my stopwatch going. I'm at 17 seconds now, so I better get into it. This is what you need to do. First off, Dustin, email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com. I'm going to be sending your sister um, a... 
bit of my roasted red pepper pasta sauce. She's going to use it in the first recipe. So let's get right into it. The deer leg. Now, you have this deer leg. This is going to be roasted. What she needs to do is remove the ugliest part of the leg. Now, a lot of times you get one of these legs, and there's a good little chunk of meat on there, and then there's some ugly bone and sometimes some sinew and tendons and stuff, depending upon who butchered it. You need to remove um, some of the extra leg bone. We're going to make a stock out of that. So in a, a good-sized stock pot, toss the leg in there, two carrots, two pieces of celery, some leek that's been cleaned very, very well. Wash it judiciously to get all the sand and nasty dirt out. Some fresh thyme, like grab a thyme bunch, twist it off. Same thing, fresh parsley, four or five juniper berries, water to cover, and you're going to cook this at the simmer. And that's not a rolling, bubbling boil. This is a little teeny simmer for at least two hours. Um, if you can go a little longer, that's great. The longer, the better. At the end, she's going to strain at at least two hours, strain this mixture into another pot, and then reduce it down. Turn the heat up a little bit and watch it bubbling and evaporating. Reduce it down to one cup of liquid. Then... She is going to, once it's at one cup, she's going to open up the roasted red pepper sauce that I'm sending her. She's going to add one and a half cups of that to the reduction. Start to warm that up and taste it for salt and pepper. If it needs a little salt, add a little. If it needs a little pepper, fine. Once you get that sauce, that roasted red pepper deer sauce done, set that aside. Now, the deer leg, it needs to come out of the fridge and come completely to room temperature. Do not... Um, take this out of the fridge and in 10 minutes putting it, put it into the oven because you will have a disaster. Let the thing sit out. It's not going to rot. Let it sit out a couple of hours to warm up. Then you're going to preheat your oven to 475 degrees, a good ripping hot oven. You're going to place the rack kind of in the lower middle, um, lower middle part of the of oven. That's where this roasting dish is going to go with the deer. So take your deer leg the roast, rub it with olive oil, salt, and pepper. That's it. Then place it into a roasting dish in that oven, and you're going to cook it 20 minutes at 475. Then you're going to reduce the heat, set a timer for 20 minutes, reduce the heat to 325, and cook it until the internal temperature using a probe comes to 125. That's a good rare. If she likes her meat done a little longer, Maybe 135 because some carryover um, temperature is going to increase when she takes it out. Um, once it comes out, cover it up on a, you know, just put some foil over it, let it rest a few minutes, carve it, and then serve it with that roasted pepper deer sauce. And that is awesome stuff. My pasta sauces are terrific to use um, as cooking sauces, as I've discovered. So that's just a simple way to, to have a, a roast leg of deer. With a seasonal vegetable, whatever time of year she decides to do it is great. Um, keep in mind, this is not lean beef. It's deer. It's going to have a good, strong flavor. Some call it gamey. I call it healthy. Um, a deer is a browsing animal. They're constantly on the go. They don't sit there and eat green grass. They'll, they'll sure they'll eat some of it, but then they'll eat some bushes, some leaves, some twigs, some bark, some berries. So they're constantly on the move eating wild vegetation and they're eating what they want to eat they know what they need and they're using their instincts to consume it therefore the meat is going to have a much more healthy flavor to it so make sure you um, tell your sister about that or have her listen to this hey sister how are you next up 
Um, the shoulder, right? Here's the shoulder. Again, a, a piece of meat that doesn't have a lot of fat. Deer are extremely lean, and this shoulder is going to get quite a bit of work. So here's what you need to do for the shoulder. Cut it into large chunks, say the size of tangerines. Toss them into a deep pot that can fit in your refrigerator. Mix together a quart of water, quarter cup of kosher salt, four to five cloves, one teaspoon cumin seed, whole seeds, a bunch of bruised fresh thyme, and you, you have everything in there, the meat, all those um, flavorings in that brine. You mix that brine up, and through the process of osmosis, which we all learned in some science class, you're going to tend to tenderize, season, moisturize this meat. Do this for at least four hours. Then you're going to drain everything out, take your chunks of deer meat, and put them on a kitchen towel. You want to pat them um, dry. You don't want them to be soaking wet. Now, put them into a bowl and toss some masa harina. You can find that in any store. It comes in the you know in the baking aisle. It's in a like a five pound package, and that is a type of corn meal. Not corn meal, but it's a it's a it's a mixture used for tamales and things like that. So you're going to toss your um, deer meat in some of the masa and try to coat it. Then in a large deep stock pot, you're going to add a half a cup of lard, maybe three quarters of a cup of lard. Once the lard gets hot, you toss the deer in there and you just want to start to brown the meat. Now the the corn uh, the masa harina that you put in there is going to serve a couple purposes. Number one, it's going to bring sort of this really neat kind of old school, out in the desert sort of Mexican flavor. It's also going to help tighten up uh, your sauce a little later on. Once the meat has um, browned a bit, and don't toss it a zillion times, you know, let it sear, turn it over. You just want some color on there. Then you are going to toss in. One recipe, which I'm going to place on HarvestEating.com because I won't have time to get into it here, of a salsa verde. That's going to be a green sauce made with tomatillos that have been roasted with onions and garlic. It's an awesome recipe. You can all download that and use it for whatever. But So she'll toss in one recipe of this salsa verde, one tablespoon of ground coriander. And coriander, folks, is the seed of the cilantro plant. It is amazing to use in cooking. Ground coriander, one tablespoon, the juice of one lime, a good juicy lime, a handful of chopped cilantro stems, and two to three serrano peppers that have been chopped up. Then she's going to add... Um, Two cups of chicken broth, season the whole thing with salt and pepper, reduce the heat down to a simmer, cover with a tight-fitting lid, and cook this thing for two and a half to three hours. And you need to test the meat and see. Maybe after two hours, she takes out a chunk, use your fork. It should. You don't want it to be stringy mash, mush. That's why you want big chunks of meat. Um, but you definitely want it to be very fork tender. So once that um, meat has reached that fork tender consistency, you're going to use a slotted spoon, take the meat out, um, put it, you know, put it aside for now, and then you're going to leave the cover off and whatever liquid's in there, you want to reduce that liquid down a bit. And you're going to have a green, wonderful kind of combination of stuff there. So to serve this, I would take I'd probably do this family style, take a big platter, put your beautiful braised um, deer meat chunks on the plate, cover with some of the green sauce. I would definitely put some cut up limes and cilantro on top to garnish. 
If you wanted to really get into it, you could take some red radishes and do a fine mince or even sliced red radishes and toss those over the top or even some sliced red onions would go great here. And then I would serve this with a sweet corn pudding. In a, um, you know, late summer, you get some great sweet corn and, and just check the internet for a corn pudding recipe, um, that this is going to be baked. So you'll kind of spoon out some of this sweet corn pudding on the plate. You're going to have the deer covered in the sauce. And then, um, I would probably serve a chili salad, which would be shredded romaine lettuce tossed with a little extra virgin olive oil. Some cilantro, a lot of cilantro, fresh cilantro chopped, lime juice, salt, and pepper. That is just a great sort of refreshing salad. It's got to be served cold. And uh, Negro Modelo, I don't know. What kind of cerveza would she have with it? Something good. Um, and that's a great way to do it. I've got 27 seconds left, folks. Um, the coupons uh, are still available, Keith at keith.harvesting.com. Next week, we're making the sauce. It'll be shipping to Amazon. I'd love for you guys and gals to try it out there. And uh, anybody that's emailed me already, your name has been put on a list, and you will get an email soon. Love all of you guys and gals out there in TSP land. Thank you so much for supporting Harvest Eating and also for supporting Jack. Jack. Love you, bro. Take care. Hungry now? Wait, it gets worse. I, of course, have additions to this. Uh, cooking beer is something I know a lot about. And I also uh, I get the benefit of having Keith give you a couple of recipes and then going totally different with them, uh, which is something that you don't usually get to do. So Keith doesn't have, you know, I think this would be different if I got to go first and Keith got to go second because listening to him gives me all kinds of ideas about what I've done in the past, what works well, what doesn't, uh, things like that. And I also have... One advantage over Chef Keith in this particular realm, I have killed an awful lot of deer. And I have taken an awful lot of deer apart on my own where I know Keith's not a hunter. He doesn't have anything against it. He just doesn't get out and hunt. And he hasn't done a lot of butchering deer from the standpoint of here's a dead deer on the ground with an arrow or a bullet in it. And let's take that and turn that into cuts of meat. Chef Keith has worked with cuts of meat given to him by other people who have prepared the deer and, and brought it to him, both as a restaurant chef and I'm sure as just at home, hey, the neighbor shot some deer and here's some pieces. So he may not be aware of all the different ways that piece of meat might show up depending on who shot it, who processed it. Did a butcher process it? Did a hunter process it? So a couple little additions here just on how the, the form of the meat and what leg and shoulder means. Let's start with the back leg. The way you usually, as a, as a hunter, without all like special saws and stuff like that, process a deer, is by the time you get to the back legs, all you've got is what you would call the rump roast and the two back legs coming off of that rump roast. And I usually take that, it's like a big giant, you know, half a deer it almost looks like, but the, the back and everything off of it is down. So you're talking about, again, just the, what you would call a rump roast and your two back legs, your two back gluteus maximuses and your lower shanks. And usually still have the hoofs on at that point because I've hung the deer up to skin it and to take it apart to this point. Um, so I've got these like, like two devil hoofs, right? And then the shank and then these two big meat hams and then this rump roast. I like to take that down off of the, the hanger and lay it down on a table or a cutting board. And then right where the seams are, if you think of like your groin, where your seam and your groin is where, where if you move your leg, it's, it, there's like a crease there. If you push those legs down right there and take a knife and come across those seams, you're right at the ball joint that goes into the pelvis because the rump roast is basically the pelvis. 
And as you expose that ball, you can take your knife, you don't need a saw or anything, and you can use the knife to go around that joint, and you can take the whole leg off of the pelvis with no saw. Now I've got a leg with a hoof on it and a ball sticking out of the end of it. And this is like the trimmings and pieces that Keith was talking about, whether or not they're there for this particular leg Only the guy that's going to open it up and look at it knows. Okay, I do that on both sides. Forget the rump roast. Now we're down to the leg. I want to now take a bone saw, or if I'm stuck and I don't have one, a hacksaw, and I want to cut the, you know, there's a little bit of hide left and a hoof and what have you. I want to cut that off right at like we would call the ankle joint. So now I've got a leg where I've got what you would call your shank, which is if you reach down to your shin and feel around to the back where that big calf muscle is, there's your shank up to the knee, and I've got the big ham, which is your knee up to that ball that's sticking out the end of it. Now, the deer leg that was sent to this person could have that shank or not have that shank. If it doesn't have that shank, there's not going to be that much to trim off to make your stock with. If it does, you can use a knife and, and carefully go around, and that joint's a little tricky, but you can dejoin it there, Or you can just say the heck with it, grab a hacksaw, and cut right through that joint. Now you've got your shank. That would be great for making the stock. And any other things that weren't trimmed off, you might use for your stock. I'm big on using bones for stock. So here's the other thing. Once that's done, so I've got the shank off. I, I, I might have meated that out and made burger out of it, which is what I usually do, or use it for stew meat. Or um, I may you know, use it to make stock myself. And, I, and so if I give you a leg, you might only have that upper piece. If you only have that upper piece, you're not going to have a lot to make the stock with. So I would say use something like a beef stock to substitute for that. If the And then the other thing is, is the bone still in the leg? When you have the ham, if you lay it on one side, there'll be a lot of meat between the top of the roast and the bone. When you flip it over, you can almost feel the bone through the meat. The, the bone will be very close. This is the inner leg. If you take your knife right there and cut down to the bone and then go around the bone with a boning knife, you can pull the whole femur, the whole big leg bone, out of the roast. You could then take that, and, and I would roast that personally in the oven just till it's brown and then make the stock, like Keith said, and add this to make the sauce. To make it a little easier to deal with, you may want to go ahead and uh, cut it with a, a saw, a bone saw or a hacksaw, before you do that and roast it in pieces. So that would be how I particularly would do the back leg. So that all comes back down to, does that leg have the bone? Does it have the shank? How much is there? That all factors into to, to what you might have to do to modify Keith's recipe to make it work for you. That said, um, so this was frozen for almost a year as a whole leg. I'd probably do it just the way Keith said. I wouldn't mess around with it very much. Um, When I particularly have that back leg piece, so now imagine you've got the bone out, you've got the shank separated, you've got this great big ham, boneless ham is the way to think of it. Uh, if it was a pig, you would call it a ham. What I like to do is I like to take that piece of meat and put it back together, so wrap it up as though it was, um, it still had the bone in it, and set it in the, set it on a board in the chest freezer for about 25-35 minutes, assuming it was already cold. It will get very, very hard. Not frozen, but it will, get, it will get very firm and easy to cut. At that point, if you don't want to have a giant roast, what you can do is make steaks out of it, basically round steaks. And you just take a really good butcher knife at the, 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 the thickness of your choosing. I like to cut about an inch and just cut slices straight off. And it takes a while to get good at cutting meat where you get a good straight slice. But if you do that... 
you get beautiful steaks, and they do kind of have that place where the bone came out where they kind of come apart, but you lay them together when you cook them, or you can go ahead and just cut them in. So you've got a small side and a large side side of the uh, of the steak there, and you can do those on the grill. Cook them medium, uh, season them to your liking. Another really cool thing to do with these, this was something I learned from a butcher, leave them in that freezer just a little bit longer. You, if you're going to do this, you want to leave that leg in there until the outside is just starting to freeze. The inside's not frozen, but the outside is actually starting to get a little frozen. Take it, and if you have one, if you have a meat slicer, like the type of meat slicer that you would use to slice cold cuts. So some people do have these. We have one in our home. And to fit it on a smaller home scale one, you may have to muscle it out. So you take the small side and the large side of the leg separately to do this. Put them on the slicer, set it pretty thin, I'm going to say around a quarter inch. And the meat has to be good and hard to do this. Run it through that slicer. You now have deer minute steaks. You now have deer minute steaks. Hot skillet, saute peppers and onions, throw the meat in just till it's brown. You want it hot, and you have a cheesesteak type product. If you put make it like a Philly cheesesteak out of that, unfreaking believable. So these are some other things you can do with that back leg if you wanted to take the time to part it out, cut it up. Shoulder. This is where it gets complicated again. Like if you asked me this, if, if I had you on the phone, we'd be talking about what does that even mean? And you might not even know because you haven't unwrapped this thing yet. The shoulder, again, if you think of your front arm, that's the shoulder. Well, there's multiple parts. There's your hand. Okay, that's the deer's hoof. And then there's your forearm. That's the front shank. And then there's your bicep. That's the lower shoulder. And then you've got this ball that goes into your this side of your body. And you think of like that's your shoulder. Well... On your back, there's your shoulder blade. That's the upper shoulder. So most of the time when we, when we as deer hunters, home processors, cut up a deer, instead of trying to quarter it the way you do a pig, where you take out and you cut out what we call a Boston pork shoulder or Boston pork butt, we just take that whole front leg off. So again, we've skinned the deer. It's hanging there naked, head cut off, neck step stumped out the end of it, two front legs sticking out, hooves still on them. Bone saw. Right at the wrist, off goes those two hooves, boom, that's thrown away or thrown to the dog. Okay? Now we have that lower shank, that's good for stock. That can be de uh, jointed with a knife, or it's usually easier to take the whole freaking front leg off. I like to cut the hoof off while it's still on the deer because you can just grab the hoof and it, there's all that body weight. The, the carcass is still full. So you zoom, zoom, zoom through, hoof goes to the dog. We then grab the, the leg, pull it away from the deer, and creates a little bit of space. So you're, you're looking at the deer's stomach, bottom of the chest at this point. You take a knife, and you go inside between the leg and the body, and there's nothing, there's no bone there at all. You go inside the shoulder blade, and the whole front leg just comes right off. It's amazing how easy it is to take the front leg off of the deer. So now you've got the forearm, the bicep, and the blade is a three-piece unit. You lay that down, and a lot of times it's just easier to use a saw. You can take apart the, 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 the forearm from the bicep by using the knife and finding all the parts, but it's a tricky joint like the back leg is. So I just saw that. Now I've got that shank, and I use it for stew or stock making or whatever. Now I've got a lower and upper shoulder. The reason I went through all this, when somebody gave you a shoulder, they gave you one of three things, and I don't know what it is. After that's done, it's actually pretty easy with your knife to go in and cut the joint that links the shoulder blade to the bicep, and you have a lower and an upper shoulder. Or 
they gave you the whole thing as a unit. The lower and upper shoulder still together. Possibly the shank on it. I doubt it because it's kind of big and funky shaped that way. Uh, or they gave you the lower shoulder or they gave you the upper shoulder. To me, this is two very different pieces of meat. Kevin Keegan, my buddy from Elijah Spring Farm, he says the shoulders, sausage, burger meat, done. I disagree. Disagree a great deal. The upper shoulder, which is the blade part, is funky, it's hard to debone, it's got this kind of V-shape on top of the scapula. You learn about it, a lot about anatomy. There's not that much meat off of one of those. You'll maybe get a pound, a pound and a half, two pounds off a really big deer off that upper shoulder. The lower shoulder looks like little round steaks. And you'll probably get about three pounds of meat to four pounds of meat off a lower shoulder. And that one, one of the great things to do with that, pretend it's a little back leg. Lay it down, find the point where the, the meat is closest to the bone. Take your knife, cut down to the bone there, take that bone out, that bone's for stock. Wrap it back up, put it in the, the, the freezer, 20, 30 minutes, get it nice and hard, cut little round steaks out of it. Cook those steaks however you like, or cook the whole thing as a roast. Okay, The upper shoulder. This is where a lot of times I do throw that into the grinder, and I use it for sausage or stew meat, uh, or sausage or, or burger. Um, the other thing you can do with it, though, generally, I need two of them to make it worth doing this. But you cut all the meat off, and there's all kinds of silver. They call it silver sheen. It's, it's these different tissues and fibers that's really a pain in the ass in the shoulders. You want to take all of that off your meat. And if you're doing Keith's recipe, same thing. When you find that silver sheen, take a fillet knife, lay it down, and just like you're taking the skin off the fish, it'll come right off for you. Take and cut it into pretty sizable pieces. And if you end up with, say, two pounds of shoulder meat, go and buy a really fatty cut, like a shoulder roast of pork, and cut that shoulder pork roast up to about the same size. Okay, Do a saltwater brine with both of them in the same container, just like Keith said. Get yourself some roast... Net, roast bag netting. So this is a, like a, a piece of netting. You can buy it in a roll, and you cut out a piece as long as you want. It's basically twine. Or you can hand tie it with twine if you want to. Just basic uh, cotton twine. And then, basically what you're going to do now is we're going to make a roast. And we're going to put specific amounts of uh, pork and, 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 and venison next to each other as we do this. So we try to make always sure that there's Some pork, touching some venison, touching some pork, touching some venison. And you can season that, salt, pepper, oregano, whatever you want, as you're doing, as you're putting that together. Keith has a new beef seasoning. I think it would be fantastic kind of mixed in. So I have all my pieces, parts. I season them up, and then I stuff them into this roasting bag. I tie it off, and then I cook that like an oven roast. Or I could smoke that. And all of that fat is going to combine in and through with the venison to keep it from drying out. Now I can do a slow roast and tenderize that meat rather than the solution Keith used was braising it to keep it nice and moist. So there's so much you can do. If, if you knew just like enough vocabulary, I could just lay off 20 things you could do just by the, the, the technique, and then you'd be able to do it. But these are some different things you can do uh, with deer meat. But I think I'll save the rest of this. I need to do a follow-up show for you guys on bow hunting deer. And I left off the last one with a deer down. So the next, I'll do a show next week where we're going to take back up into that series. How do we gut that deer, get it home, cut it up, all those good things. 
and get it into pieces, parts, so that we're ready to do these great things with it. Sorry to go long, but this is a subject that I could talk for days about. I love deer, and I love deer meat, and I love butchering deer, and I love cooking venison. And I'm with Keith on the gamey thing. There's no such thing as a gamey taste. That is a word that I, every time I hear it on TV from a TV chef, I want to slap them in the head. There is flavor, and there is flavorless, and what people call gamey is shittily prepared meat by idiots that don't know how to prepare meat properly and use gamey as an excuse, or by people that don't know how to process meat and get things like fecal matter or urine or glandular products in contact with the meat and give it an off taste. Gamey is a myth. It's not gamey. I hate that word. As much as I love Andrew Zimmer, I want to slap him in his fat head every time he says, that's nice and gamey. Just stop it. Stop using that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means when you say it. Anyway, one more question to go. This one also kind of on a food subject, but food and gardening together. This for expert council member Erica Strauss from Ben. Uh, she wants to, He wants to know about garlic. When to harvest, when to plant, how to dry, reserve, preserve bowls for planting next year, and what to do if you let yours flower. Background. I planted six varieties of garlic around our homestead this year. I wasn't vigilant and didn't cut the scapes, and nearly all of them have flowered. They're beautiful and fascinating from a botanical standpoint, but I have, ru have I ruined months of growing and harvest from this misstep? I've eaten the little seeds and they're really tasty, but what should I do with these plants? There are probably three dozen of them. Should I leave them to overwinter? Can I eat them? Can I plant the bulbs next year? What say you, Erica? Hi, Jack. This is Erica from Northwest Edible calling in to answer Ben's question about growing and harvesting garlic. Let's cover a few basics about how to grow garlic just to get everyone on the same page. In general, garlic is super hardy. Unless you literally live in Siberia, you're going to get the best results if you plant your garlic cloves in the fall for harvest the next summer. Think of your garlic a lot like tulips. In fact, whenever you plant tulips in your local region, that's probably a really great time to plant garlic. And then garlic will just chill out all through the winter, just establishing its root system slowly. And it will be in a really good position because it's been spending winter underground growing some roots to grow rapidly in the spring and summer and establish a strong leaf system. And then that strong leaf system is going to give you big, healthy bulbs. So for timing, you want to push your garlic cloves into the ground in fall to get garlic bulbs in midsummer. Garlic itself is a subspecies of the lily family, and anyone who has been a ornamental gardener and who has grown lilies and see how they propagate will recognize that similarity. There's over 600 subspecies of garlic, but in general, we can categorize all the varieties as either soft neck or hard neck. This is a pretty big distinction. I'm going to get into it in a little bit of detail because it's very important for gardeners to understand. Soft neck garlic makes multiple layers of cloves, usually three layers of cloves, with the outer layers of cloves very large, and then the inner layers getting progressively smaller and less usable, until at the very center, there's these teeny little cloves of garlic that aren't even really worth peeling. And, you know, honestly, these are the kind of cloves of garlic that sit on our counter for a while, and then eventually we throw them away because we don't want to be bothered peeling them. That's how sort of little and annoying they are. 
botanically, the key thing about soft neck garlic is that it doesn't grow what's called escape. And I'll talk about that in a second. Soft neck garlics last for a very, very long time, which is an advantage with a crop that you harvest and then hold for months at a time while using it in the kitchen. In comparison, hard neck garlic grows escape and generally makes a single layer of very large cloves around this one scape. So whereas with soft neck garlic, you might get 20 or more cloves of garlic getting progressively smaller. With hard neck, you might get 5, 8, 10 cloves, but they're all going to be very large. Hard neck garlic is kind of the connoisseur's garlic. The flavor tends to be more distinct and more powerful. People who really get into distinguishing between different varieties of garlic tend to be kind of in love with hard neck garlic. But hard neck garlics don't last as long in storage. So you can probably guess what kind of garlic you're going to find at the supermarket. It's going to be long lasting, but generally fairly bland soft neck garlics like California early and California late that store very well, but are not particularly impressive from a culinary standpoint. From the gardener's perspective, the hard neck versus soft neck distinction is pretty key. The most defining characteristic of a type of garlic is the scape. And a garlic scape is basically a stem. It's the firm stem and unopened flower bud of the hard neck garlic varieties. Scapes are themselves a culinary delicacy. You'll often see them in farmer's markets for ungodly prices in the spring. They are these sort of funny shooting curly cues looking things. They have a texture kind of like a green bean crossed with asparagus and a mild garlicky flavor that's really pleasant stir fried or pickled. Soft neck garlic doesn't throw these scapes, which is why you can braid them into those cool wreaths or whatever. But hard necks do. And because hard neck garlics throw these scapes, they require a little bit more management. What you want to do is cut the garlic scapes in late spring or early summer when they're starting to mature, but before the flowers open. Cutting the scapes will allow the plant to send more energy down into the garlic bulb, which is your second harvest. Now, Ben, it sounds like you're pretty worried that you totally screwed up by not cutting your garlic scapes. And in fact, it sounds like you're worried because you've been harvesting something that you're calling garlic seeds. Well, okay, so Ben, what's happening with your garlic is you sound like you've got a hard neck variety that's thrown a stalk in a seed head and you've allowed that seed head to mature and it's grown something called bulbils. So garlic doesn't really make seeds in the way we typically think of them. Bulbils are sort of like tiny miniature garlic cloves that are born on the end of a garlic flower. And while it's unusual to rely on those as a form of propagation, you absolutely can. Imagine, if you will, somewhere in the steppes of Russia, or, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, a native garlic plant shooting up, sending up a flower, and then growing heavy up top with these bulbils. Eventually, the garlic stalk would become so top-heavy, it would fall over. And those bulbils, which were way up at the top of the flower, would land in the soil. This would allow them to root 
and the genetic heritage of the plant would continue. In fact, there's a perennial that permaculturists love called Egyptian walking onion that works exactly like this. The onion makes these bulbils at the very top of the flower and then falls over. And the action of the bulbils rooting several feet from the original plant and sort of propagating this way has given rise to this name of walking onion because it's almost like this onion walks all over your yard. Well, many alliums, if given the chance, will propagate in this manner. So, Ben, here's the bottom line. By not cutting the scape, you didn't ruin anything. Your garlic's still going to develop normally, and it's still going to split into cloves within the bulb. But because you allowed the parent garlic to send energy to two methods of propagation instead of just one, your bull bills come at the cost of smaller garlic bulbs. So at this point, what do you do? The bulbils are themselves able to grow into mature heads of garlic if you're patient. Typically, where it would take one year for a clove of garlic to turn into a head of garlic, it will take two years for the bulbils to yield into a full head of garlic. So if you want to go this route, you plant your bulbil in the fall, and you can probably expect like a single Single undifferentiated, possibly spherical clove of garlic the first summer. So you're not looking for a head, you're just looking for sort of a generous giant clove from that bulbil in one year. And then you replant that clove in the fall, and the second summer you can expect to harvest a full head of garlic. Now, no matter how you grow them, when it comes to harvesting heads of garlic, here's a tip. Garlic bulbs grow strappy green leaves. And then as they reach maturity, they send all the energy and photosynthesized sugars from those leaves down into the storage bulb, which is what we want. Well, each healthy, strong green leaf above ground equals one full protective wrapper layer around the garlic bulb below ground. And in order to have a bulb of garlic store well, you're looking for about three to five complete intact wrapper leaves. These wrapper leaves keep the soil out from between the cloves and protect the bulb of garlic in storage. So a good way to tell if your garlic is ready to harvest is to watch the leaves yellow and die down. This is the energy from the leaves going into those cloves of garlic. And when you notice only three to five remaining green leaves, it's time to pull that garlic and start drying it out for cooking and storage. So, Ben, I don't know exactly where you are geographically, but in your situation, here's what I would do. First of all, assess your garlic plants. If the majority of the leaves of your garlic have turned yellow and died down, but there's still a few leaves remaining that are green, your garlic might be in the ideal state to dig and dry. If you don't see any remaining green leaves, here's the reality. Most of your garlic has matured so far that it's split open and soil has gotten in between the cloves. If this is your situation, your garlic is really not ideal for long-term fresh storage, but you can still eat it fresh, dehydrate it, pickle it, and select certain cloves for replanting for your next year harvest. In terms of replanting, you're going to want to look for the healthiest, prettiest looking garlic bulbs. Ideally, you want something where the papery covering around the clove is very firmly intact. All right, guys, my time is up. Thank you, Ben, for 
for the great question. And thank you, Jack, for all you do. Remember, guys, keep those questions coming. Again, my name is Erica from Northwest Edible. Visit me anytime at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. I will talk to you next week. Great stuff from Erica, as always. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this week. Remember, guys, if you want to send in a question for the expert council, the way to do that, email me at jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSP expert in the subject line. Give me your question in one to two sentences maximum. And then hit the return key a couple times before you give me any details that you deem necessary. Tell me which expert council member the question is for. Uh, if you know which member of the council it's for, if you want me to choose for you, I can try to do that for you. But I'd prefer to know who you're asking the question for. Again, uh, I'll tell you, we could really use some questions for Jeff Lawton. I'd love to hear from you guys about whether you'd like to hear him, though, for the next two weeks. Continue on the housing topic, uh, moving into the other two climate types. Again, humid uh, and hot climates, as well as... Is arid and hot climates. Um, and I have a lot of great stuff planned for you next week. We are going to go into the, uh, the deer hunting thing again, like I said. And we're going to talk about dealing with a deer from a deer down to a deer processed and ready to either be made into other wonderful edible bits or just put into the freezer. Uh, we're going to talk about some other hardcore general uh, prepping stuff next week as well. We'll have a great interview. We'll have another expert council show. Uh, I have a, a dynamite show planned for you guys on Monday with your listener feedback show. We're going to talk about everything including, yes, the stupidity behind Cecil the Lion. Uh, we're going to talk about that even a little bit and how it's your daily dose, your daily cup of Super de Miara de Toro. And we're going to have another fascinating expert council call by the end of the week. So get those things into me. I'll be putting together the expert council members' questions on Monday. So if you want a shot at being the guy or the gal that gets to ask a question of the council members, get that to me by Sunday afternoon is the best uh, thing. Again, TSP expert in the subject line. And yes, next week, Thursday, there will be a Jack Answers Your Telephone Calls to 866-65-THINK-SHOW. We will finally be coming back to that. We got all discombobulated yesterday. I went and served as the minister for my son's wedding, so I took yesterday off, so that extended the, uh, the lack of shows on the Thursday. But hey, they're coming back. Everything will be back into full swing next week. Thank you guys for all you do. Thank you for your support of the Survival Podcast. My challenge to you is to all have an awesome freaking weekend this weekend. Really. Go out and have a great weekend. Celebrate life. Celebrate your families. Don't get drugged down by all the crap that we deal with. That's why we prep so we can live awesome lives, not so we can live lives based on doom and gloom and fear. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.